Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E, M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Nick Johnston, who's a Canadian guitar player that plays and performs predominantly solo instrumental works. In addition to his five studio albums, Nick has appeared on albums from artists such as Periphery, Polyphia, Intervals, Scale the Summit, Mike Dawes, and many, many more. This guy really has like the silkiest, smooth approach to guitar I have heard out of any modern player. And it's a great episode. Let's get this started. I introduce you, Nick Johnston. All right, well, Nick Johnston, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Guys, it's great to be here. It's great to be here. Hey, Nick. Hey, Al and John. Hello, hello. Where are you guys? John, obviously hello. you're in the UK. Hey, Al, where are you? Are you in Atlanta or Georgia as well? Or Yes, sir. You are, uh, cool. I am. You? Yep. Nice. Where are you? I'm just... West of Toronto. Okay. In a little town called, well, mid-sized town called Guelph. <laughs> That's a good name. Yeah, I said exactly the same thing. It sounds like you stepped in mud or something. It's like the sound it makes. <laughs> so have you been like uh, locked at home? I was for most, like from the worldwide perspective of how long everyone was locked down. Can't You know, Canada, at least where I am, especially Ontario, the province, and then going even further inside uh, Ontario into this district that I'm in, this county that I'm in, we were the first city, I think, in in Ontario where they just opened everything. Just like a couple weeks ago, everything's just, just wear a mask everywhere, but you can go anywhere. Nothing's closed. Malls are open. You know, you can teach again. You can just do anything as long as you wear a mask. We were like locked down and then we were not locked down. So it was kind of a big binary on and off thing. It was, it was very interesting. <laughs> and where, where are you with all that? I'm good, man. I was getting, I was getting pretty antsy. Um, not because I missed touring or I missed tra- you know, whatever. It was just even being somebody who likes to spend a lot of time on, on their own and just be creative on my own. I was just missing just being able to go somewhere that I wanted to go, like just go and get a coffee or, um, just sit down on a patio and see some friends and, you know, I still, I wear like a, like a, like a neckerchief thing around my, I don't wear like the medical mask cause I find it's almost impossible to breathe in it. But you know, you're all out there. Everyone has like unique, it's like fashion now, <laughs> everyone with their mask trying yeah. to look a certain way. So 
pro tip to anybody wearing the medical mask is a uh, mouthwash. Oh, you can't breathe. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, I mean, you find out really quick if uh, if your breath is bad. You find out if you have any. You have, if you have any gum disease, it's pretty apparent. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's that might be one of the unanticipated benefits of all the mask wearing is that people's dental hygiene is going to get way, way better. Yeah, man. On the stock market, floss stocks are just going to go through the roof. (laughs) Dude, the first time I went out with a mask, I was like, holy shit, this is, I got to change something. Yeah, I need to (laughs) reevaluate. Yeah. (laughs) I actually bought my first ever electric toothbrush yesterday. And I'm maybe thinking that subliminally this was the issue (laughs) that I could just smell myself through the mask every single time I went out. Yeah, man. Well, yeah, it's nice to just be able to sort of get in the car and not just drive aimlessly around town. It's nice to be able to stop somewhere now. And especially a lot of these smaller businesses, the the city I live in, it's basically built off of small businesses. So to go and support and hopefully, you know, keep these, these businesses we've been going to for so many years, not you know, keep them in business. Essentially, it's a bummer to see so many of them have have closed down and people out of work. And but you know, that's going to be just the fallout of what happened. So it's nice to get back to normal, some somewhat normal, anyways. How's it been for your uh, musicianship and just creativity to be locked down? Nothing really changed. Besides, it's funny. I've talked to a few other people about this. The only thing that really changed was I'm I'm getting semi six, seven, eight hours of sleep every night now. It's, you know, and I'm not jet lagged. You know, that's the, like jet lag is, I don't even know what, what he is anymore. It's been good. I have been working on this project. I was telling John before with a buddy of mine where uh, we're both singing and, and writing and, and playing different instruments on this album. And we were doing two sessions over FaceTime a week. And, you know, since mid to early May, we've been doing two a week in person again. So, you know, it was only about a month and a half, maybe two months where I was just working on my instrumental stuff alone and, and just experimenting. And I put guitar on the back burner. I was just working on keyboard stuff and just trying to, you know, develop some new harmony and, and do something new. You know, I put out four or five albums in the matter of whatever that was, eight years. And I found it just got to the point where I wasn't saying anything new. You know, I had nothing new to to add to the conversation, so to speak. So it was nice to just go, okay, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I put the guitar away. I'll just try and try and work on uh, my ear and harmony and being creative and arranging. So that, you know, that, that has not changed at all. It, it, it just meant uh, I got to do it without having to run to the airport every couple of days. <laughs> you know, I feel like this has been like my biggest point of advice for friends of mine, if they want to hear it, obviously, if they don't, then cool. But my biggest point of advice during this whole thing to like, you know, URM students and everybody is, uh, everyone's in this together. So it's not like anybody's falling behind. Obviously some people are hit harder than others, but this is going to be one of the only times in your life that you get to just have time to work on something. And so if there's something that, that you feel like you've always wanted to do, but life has not allowed you the time to do it, like you're saying now with uh, evolving your ear, this was the perfect opportunity to just nail it. Yeah, I, I, I think if I struggled with anything, it was just, there's this weird thing that happens when I'm given too much time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is, yeah. Like prioritizing, you know, and, and I'm, not, I, I'm not the kind of guy that sleeps 
sleeps past, you know, I, I get up usually every day at like eight thirty or eight o'clock in the morning, just because I spent so long in my teenager, teenage years staying up till four or five and just getting up at noon the next day and being like, what, 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 what am I hmm. doing? You're right. So Wasted being in day. my thirties now, I, I get up early and, and I, I go to bed at a pretty decent time, you know, maybe one or two o'clock in the morning. So I get those seven hours of sleep, but you look at that whole thing and you're like, oh my God, that's, that spread of time is, is just, it's, it's insane. You, I have so many possibilities. Wait, okay, but I have to be indoors. Okay. So, so many possibilities. Now they've been narrowed down to the confines of this house. Okay. Uh, I got rid of social media, so I don't have social, I use it once a week. So I got rid of all that. So I'm not distracted by the phone. And then you're like, okay, now I have all this time to work on music. And then you find yourself going, well, I don't want to work on music all day. Like there's only maybe this hour or this, hour. like you become like, oh my God, I have, what the hell am I going to fill all this, this time with? And then when I was younger, I would sit down and do two hours. And then I'd wait and that's two, eight hours a day of working on music. And now it became more of like, okay, when I want to, and when I feel like I have something that's motivating me to do this. And it was a battle of, I have all these hours and I'm not just going to sit at this chair and sit at the piano. I'll find myself resenting it in a weird way. It's like, damn you, COVID, I can't go and play my music or do this and that. <laughs> I'm stuck here working on music. It's like, I wanted to find a way to, to balance when I wanted to work on music uh, and, and, and not taking for granted the, the, just the open ocean of time I had in front of me. I think I found a good balance. I, I found I was working a lot more at night when it was a little more quiet and not a ton of people around and I had stopped doing all the email because that's the thing. I had this guitar come out, this orange guitar with Schecter. So I was doing a bunch of promo and emails. And I did a bunch of podcasts and stuff. So it was still busy during the day, but then it was like, okay, I could squeeze an hour. In. Anyway, I'm rambling. But the point being, it was just finding that balance of all this free time, could work on music, but do I want to? <laughs> that was the hardest thing in retrospect. So question about that. Because, you know, you're contrasting that with when you were younger and like the super discipline of like yeah. two hours break, two hours break, two hours break, and like really segmenting that work. Do you think though that, and I know you're a humble dude, everyone that I think is awesome at music is pretty humble about it. And I think that's actually probably why they're good at it. But do you think that when you're younger... If you want to reach a certain level, I guess, a certain height with your musicianship, do you think it's better to take that super disciplined approach or only do it when you want to? I mean, like, do you think that because of where you're at, you've kind of afforded yourself the flexibility to follow inspiration more? Oh man, that, that's a really good question. That's a fantastic question. And I'd like to, John, I'd like to hear you, you answer that too, after I try to take a stab at it. Just, uh, being an accomplished guitar player yourself, I'd like to hear what, what you think. You know, I think to me, this this is a relatively easy answer. And that is, I really believe I had no choice. I had no choice but to to have that discipline. It was, it was something that took root in me so deeply that I would get levels of... of um, I didn't know what to call it at the time because uh, I didn't have the, the the knowledge of maybe I, I'm, I'm assuming it had something to do with mental illness, but like I had such anxiety when I didn't have the time to play, I would get like kind of sick a little bit. Like I felt, um, if I didn't play the amount of hours, if I didn't mm -hmm. log those hours, I would get like sick. I couldn't focus. I was angry. I was sad. I was, it was a really weird dependency thing I had with, with the instrument and music and just being around music and talking about music. I, was 
a slave to the guitar. I would wake up. It was whether, you know, a, a lot of guys I knew, the first thing they thought about in the morning when they woke up in their teen years was girls or the last thing they thought of was girls or video games. <laughs> Every day I woke up, it was, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Laying in bed at night, I, I specifically remember going to bed thinking like, okay, I got I to gotta work on that. You know, from the time I started playing at 14 until... A few years ago, man, it was all encompassing. And I think about that now and it makes me shudder because there's just no way I could keep up that pace. Nobody can. You can't play eight hours a day unless you are, like I'm in a relationship. Like I can't have a healthy relationship if I'm playing eight hours a day. You just, like, <laughs> you can't. It's fucking impossible. No, you can't. You, you guys know that. And, and um, yes. you can't do anything else. Like I literally had no, fr- like, I had nothing because of the guitar. Like, and I only started making a little bit of money off it a couple of years ago too. Like I'm 33. It's like, I wasn't doing it for any reason other than I had this dependency on something that made me feel good when I got a little bit better at it. You know, I went through three uh, phases, so to speak, with things I was obsessed with. As a Canadian kid, I was, I was a hockey, you know, I played hockey for a long time. And then I had a lot of buddies when it went from April to October in Canada, which is when the nice weather is, you skateboard. You just, you are out all day. And you sk- so I got obsessed with that whole world and I got really good at it. And I could, I like, I had a set amount of tricks I wanted to do and I could do all this, all this crap. But then I realized that that had a shelf life and my knees started to hurt and I would break the board and I hit my head a bunch of times, all the bullshit. So I stopped. Um, but then it was, it was finally where I found music and, and the instrument um, that I was able to go. I mean, this is it. Like, this is this is where I'm going to put all my energy. I didn't just put all my energy. I put like all my thoughts. I put all of my free time. I prioritize it over friends. Like, anyway, I'm just proving a point that I don't think I could have that discipline. I don't think anybody could have that discipline unless you were like government funded. <laughs> like the government wants you to play eight hours a day. So you're going to have to do it. It's like, because then the other side of it, you look at it, you go, well, why the hell did you do it? And I, I know I'm not the only one who did that. There's people who played more than I did. But it's like, there's no, there was no reason other than just because it made me feel really, really good. Obsession. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, yeah. John, what do you think? What do you think about all that? I think that maybe it's slightly different to obsession in this particular instance. Like when, when you yeah. were just talking then, it kind of reminded me about, for example, imagine you take a gamer that plays a lot of computer games and they have to 100% the game. It's kind of that kind of feeling. It's the sense of accomplishment and achievement. And I think that maybe obsession gets mixed in with that sometimes because I think obsession sort of talks about different things that you're not, you know, necessarily like, you know, trying to get better at. Like with guitar, I don't see it as obsession. I see it as if it's making you feel better than keep playing the instrument you know what i mean so i mean yeah. i never followed anything as isn't that what obsession is i don't think so i think there's you're trying to fill a void you are trying when to you're fill obsessed a void. with something you're trying to fill a void within yourself i don't necessarily feel that way you know and what's it what's interesting too is when you talk about video games or you talk about you can hear i'm canadian when i say that huh about <laughs> <laughs> there's an interesting thing with with all that world where it's like okay in order to 100 percent a game the mindset is I know what I have to do. It's like, here's the rules. Here's the, here's the law. Here's the, whatever you call it, the, the sort of the bullet points you follow these bullet points with me. I didn't have a teacher. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. There was no YouTube. There was no internet. So I was in my mind too. It was like, I don't even think anything I'm doing is getting me anywhere because 
it was just by sheer virtue of spending that time with the instrument, I guess you just you just develop a bond. It became a friend in a weird way too, you know. It I actually okay right now I think it's obsession. <laughs> yeah. Dude, it's, it, it is. Yeah. But that's I have a theory that and Brown, like remember when we started Riff Hard, I told you you need to get obsessed with it. Like I yeah. got obsessed about URM in order to make it and like I got broken up with like my health went to shit. And the only thing I did <laughs> was like, I quit fucking production that I was like making six figures at. Like I quit it cold Turkey to start URM and that became my life. And that's what it was like when I was a guitar player and writing music. And, uh, the only thing that mattered was that, and that that's obsession. It's just that obsession can be, uh, you know, it's kind of like a high-powered weapon. So you can point it at something <laughs> negative. Like if a stalker gets obsessed with someone they're stalking, that's not a good thing. But if it's pointed towards self-improvement at something you want to get great at, then that's great. I think maybe that I just associate the word obsession with something negative. I think that's obviously... Like a stalker. A lot of people would. Yeah. yeah. I think it also hit at the right time. You know, well, not everybody's lucky enough, unfortunately, but the people who are lucky enough to find the thing at a young age, I don't think I, I would have taken music, like if I didn't get into it until I was, say, 25 or 26. I don't think it would have had the same captivation because when I was a young teenager confused and going through puberty and, and you know, everybody kind of was confused about who they are. It's like, it gave me, it helped define my personality too. It helped me sort of fill in the blanks. Like, how do I feel about things? And, and, oh, I'm okay with being by myself for a while. That's that void I was talking about. Exactly. But you know, what's so funny about all that is I remember when I was, I had just started playing, just started. My dad, he had a, a Joe Satriani CD. Oh yeah. Flying in the flying in the blue dream. And he played me flying in the blue dream. He goes, What do you think of that? And I go, I'm like, where's the singing? This is this is terrible. Like <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get it. I didn't get the instrumental thing at all until until later, obviously. But um, What's crazy is that my my mother introduced me to Satch. <laughs> that's so funny. That's so funny. It just changed my life. And I think all of us, that's why you guys are, you know, music on some level. It's like why we're all why John, you have all those amps behind you and you know why we're here talking you guys run a it's like something about music just it just man it just kicked just kicked our asses at some point you know just like okay this is it no choice in the matter there was no choice man i can definitely understand why i focus so much on it i know that i use as music as a way as a cathartic way of release oh yeah i don't know oh, if yeah. that's similar for for you but judging by the expression in your playing i would say that that is very much the same case for you I, I would say so yeah that's fair i'm just speculating there but that's yeah. kind of what i found i just found that music was a really good release for me i was always quite bad at talking to people so for me it was like being able to do all that without actually anyone really knowing what i'm saying in a weird way I will say that when I was writing music, it was the same thing. I guess I got to one point where I felt like I had nothing left to say, which is when I moved on. But when I was doing it for those 20 years, it was the same sort of thing. There's like a deeper feeling inside of you that cannot be verbalized, but that is so strong, you have to get it out of you. And for whatever reason, you know, like however your brain is wired, music is the way that it comes out and it's more than verbal. And the reason I think that 
that is deeper than verbal is just because, I mean, this is a cliche thing to say, but it's universal. You can play your music anywhere to people from any culture and they'll have the same reaction, even though they don't speak the same language as you. So I think, I think it comes from a deeper place, which is actually why I connect with instrumental music more than music with lyrics. Cause sometimes I think lyrics cheapen it because music itself, I think is a, just this deeper, like primal universal thing. And that's a cool way to look at it. Absolutely. It was interesting how I got into, I'm just going to run with what you were saying, how I sort run of with it. found my way into instrumental music. It was 100% an accident, like totally an accident. It's funny you say 20 years because I was, as soon as you said, I was like, well, how long have I been doing it? It's 20 years. This I just turned 33 uh, last week. So it's like, oh my God, it's been 20 years. Because I started off air guitaring, you know, with like Green Day and, and Nirvana and, and, you know, when I was whatever, uh, seven or eight years old, 94, 90, 93, just hearing just guitar, just like raw, disgusting, you know, ham-fisted guitar playing. It was just kind of cool. And I always in my mind thought if you were going to be a guitar player, you already had to be a famous music. Like it didn't make any sense in my mind that a guitar player had to be bad at one point. It's like, oh, he's a, he's a guitar player. He's like, you know, my dad listened to a lot of, or always had in the house playing Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all these bands and hearing Jimmy Page, you know, play Cashmere or something. You're like, well, he's, he's a, he's a guitar god. Cause like that's his, was his destiny. That is what he will always be. And I don't just realize came out the womb like that. Yeah, it's like I don't ever, re- I don't ever think that Jimmy Page had to learn f- fifth fret and seventh fret and go like this. Like I never learned. I never figured out he had to learn what a power chord was or whatever the approximation of that was. Um, but then I discovered my little Play-Doh mind, my little plasticine brain. When I was 15, I heard by accident because I I had a buddy that had a burned CD from um, Napster, <laughs> a Ingve track. I heard um, Vengeance off of the Magnum Opus record, and I heard the guitar solo in that. And just imagine, I went from essentially cutting the lawn with uh, with uh, with hedge clippers to a flamethrower. You know, it's like I went from hearing Nirvana <laughs> to Ingve soloing. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Like, are you kidding me? Right. So then, I found myself going, wow, like the prowess and like hearing the, the time you could, you could hear sound embodiment of time. Like there's like some, I'm sure there's some sort of Ingve equation, like time and isolation over X equals neoclassical innovation (laughs) 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 or something stupid. Arpeggios from hell divided by asshole ego or something. (laughs) Hearing that. And then I kind of found out this new crop of players when I was in my early teens. And that's when I found all the guys from the Shrapnel label, you know, Paul Gilbert and uh, Richie Cotson, Greg Howe, Vinnie Moore, list goes on, Jason Becker, blah, blah, blah. And I sort of just threw myself in that world. But what was so fascinating about it, because it's funny, I'm getting like little goosebumps talking about it because it takes me back. But the difference was compared to now, it's my old man, you kids these days. But when I was a kid, (laughs) <laughs> you had to find the CD or the tape, which was where I lived in, in Canada, nay impossible. So when you found one, you coveted it. You got that album or that CD or that vinyl or that yep. um, tape and you fucking coveted that piece of musical playback. You know, you sat there, you read the liner note, like what guitar did Paul use? Like, oh my God, it shows the year and the date that they record this. I think 
Street Lethal was recorded from like December 86, December 86 to like, no, it was like December 15th, 86 to December 17th. Like they had two days to do the record or something because they had no budget at, at that record, at that studio. And then you just become, because the music itself, questionable, but when you heard the guitar playing, <laughs> when you heard the guitar playing, and then you figured out Paul's 19 here. He's only a couple of years older than me. Like, oh my, there's this weird self tail chasing thing that started to happen where it's like, I, I can do that. I can get better. I can do that. I can, it's going to be who I am. Like, I know I can do this. I can play like that. I can write like that. I can, and then all that had long hair. I'm like, why? Well, okay, cool, man. I can do, I can, well, I know I can do that. <laughs> the hair grows. I don't have to practice. The hair will just grow. And then, uh, the one thing that I, I didn't understand till later that, that really helped me form my identity was the whole time I was playing a guitar with, with single coils in it. So it, it kind of forced me to, to just inherently sound different than them, even though I had the same, like, oh, I want to play that much and I want to, I want to sound like that. But I never could because I didn't have just the, my amp never, my gear never, my hands never sound like it. So I, I learned early on, you know, there is a separation point here. And I'm also left-handed, so my picking hand was always really messy. Anyway, I'm just saying... All of that stuff, you know, just just getting so deep into that, and 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 then eventually coming out of the other side of it, you go like, oh, I guess I'm I'm writing music like that because you are what you eat. And the music I was writing, I have old burned CDs from when I was like 17. I used to submit to to the Mike Varney guitar player column and a few different. Col- I remember getting into a few few different columns because of the just the sheer. Just, I mean, I listened back to some of it not not too long ago. I was laughing. It was it's so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to myself play now and I'm like, wow, I was far more, my guitar playing was far more technical and far more kind of outrageous when I was 17 years old, but it's just, that's where my head was. And then you come out of it and then you, you, you're, oh, I'm writing instrumental music. That plus I didn't have anybody around. I grew up in a small town of like, you know, less than a thousand people. So there weren't a lot of musicians and singers and all this. And then I remember taking, I'm just rambling here, by the way, but I remember taking um, <laughs> a couple songs to a buddy of mine who was releasing music and uh, he listened to the, he was older by about 20 years and he listened to it and he, he was like, okay, I, I, I like you playing sounds good, but I'm afraid you're going to go down the same path as those guys and come out of your shell and it's too late and, and you, you don't have any songs. You never learned how to write melodies. You never learned how to understand arrangement. So he gave me a project. He goes, I want you to go home tonight and come back to me tomorrow with a brand new song with no guitar solo in it. That little project changed everything because I had to go, well, if I can't solo, then what the fuck am I going to do? Oh, there's these things <laughs> called melodies. There's these things called verses and choruses. It was a hard lesson at the right time. And I, and I, I grabbed onto it. And then from there, just everything, you know, started changing. And I, I started to kind of develop themes and, and melodies and understand harmony and, you know, the bluesy stuff in my playing had more of a focus in certain spots. And then I could take that out and weave it in. It wasn't just, here's the, the eight finger tapping lick I'm working on. It had not, you know, that's gone now. That shit doesn't matter anymore. It became about, about melody and stuff, you know, and that was 15 years ago. You know, one of the big critiques of instrumental guitar playing, and uh, I feel this too, is that it, it can be very boring because it becomes very self-indulgent. And I feel like a lot of the times it's just style over substance, but the ones that tend to stand out have figured out how to transcend that. I mean, there's a whole ocean of dudes who have not transcended that, who are just like impressive, like, like athletic, athletically speaking. But I feel like, uh, those that have figured out how to actually make music with it, 
that's like the difference between truly great and not with instrumental. I couldn't agree more with that. I think what's scary right now is the influence, not to just jump into this because this is, this is an old man topic as well, but the influence of what all these apps have done is they've made it seem like you need to get involved in this and you need to start releasing music as soon as possible. You need to throw your hat in the ring. Whereas I look at it, I'm like, man, I didn't rush to get anything out. I marinated and I worked on my sound and I worked on what I wanted to write and I worked on my ears for like, I mean, I didn't release my first album for at least a decade since it started from, or my, my first song or anything was like so much research and so much trial and error and so much bullshit had to, had to be removed. I had to just sift through just stacks and stacks of feces to get through all that, you know? And I feel now it's just like people aren't giving themselves the introspective time you need. It's like, there's a thing that happens when you, when you publish your video or you're playing on Instagram and you just, you refresh it and you try to immediately check. It's like, if you can get rid of that need, like just ask yourself, is this good? Like, did I need to do this? Is this musical? Is this, is this a statement? I'm guilty of putting up videos. I'm just noodling. Of course, who isn't? But when I, when I release stuff, I like, I have to just remember like, am I getting this out just because I need stuff out or is it like something I'm trying to say and something I'm, I've developed, something I've worked on and, and thought about and was introspective with and showed other people that I respect and got their feedback and this and that. Cause I write with the door closed. I always write with the door closed. Then I'll, I'll, you know, maybe I'll come back, maybe some production stuff with the door open. So, you know, that's like, that's the whole Stephen King thing where he talks about where he, the first draft he writes with the door closed and second draft he writes with the door open. I, lo- I love that mentality. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a really good, important sort of factor to take from this because I, I see it from both sides when it comes to writing. Like in my mindset, I see writing music as almost like a point in time. And I think that sometimes people overwork that point in time trying to make something that it isn't. And then there's the other side of the coin, whereas if you think it's good in that moment, then you should release it because in that moment it was good and it captured that point in time. So like, I'm kind of sort of divided between those two mentalities sometimes because, yeah, I know where you're saying, wait a decade until you've honed your sound. But at the same time, if you think it's good in that moment, then you should also release it. But then again, I also come from a different point in time. Like, you know, when I first started playing guitar, there wasn't really any internet. There was no social media. Um, I think that maybe the mindset shifted due to those, you know, it's going to be there forever, basically. Well, it would have been anyway, but now even more so with video. (laughs) Oh yeah, well said. (laughs) I actually subscribe to the middle ground between that to where I see it as like, Two different parts of the brain. One is like the creative and the other is more like the analytical. We've talked about this before of being an artist versus a craftsman. So the that point in time, you know, that, that feeling side of it, that's the creative art side of it. And that is what you create in that point in time will always be that. But then how you refine it, that's the craft. And you could either refine it to death and kill it, <laughs> or you can refine it just right, like Michelangelo carving something and do it right. But I think that whether or not it gets overdone and killed is basically in how good of a craftsman you are, which is tough. 
Yeah, I guess it's also just where you are in your life as a musician and how old you are and the th- and things you value, how you approach all of that. Right now, I guess I'm really into that mindset of don't rush to put it out just because you kind of said something interesting earlier, Al, where you said you didn't have anything left to say. I feel right now, I ha- like I have nothing to add to the, the ethos of instrumental music right now. I have nothing new to say. I'm like, okay, I'll just wait until something something new sparks my interest or my ear shifts in a different direction. From album to album, I see noticeable differences where I was putting sort of, and as instrumental as an instrumental musician and on those records, harmony is a huge part of it for me. I see very solid chunks of time where I, I was thinking of this, these are the kind of progressions or these are the kind of melodies I value. And maybe on the first album, it was more bluesy based than as it evolved and and right now I'm I'm kind of at the beginning of, of seeing a new stage happen and I'm writing a lot of really terrible music right now. <laughs> and I'm aware of that. I'm like, okay, I know this is not the end point for this new thing. <laughs> so I'm kind of at that point where it's like, okay, I may not have an album out for a couple of years and maybe that's bad for my existing fan base or that's bad for the landscape or whatever, but that doesn't override my thought process for how I should proceed as a musician. You know, it's 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 really coming down to, do you have anything new to say? No. Then shut the fuck up. <laughs> Man, there's there's kind of nothing worse than an artist phoning it in. Yeah, it's true, man. Especially the, after five or six albums, right? It's like, don't do it now, dude. Like, especially when you don't have to. <laughs> there's no one breathing down your neck for an album, so don't do it. I don't think your fan base wants you to phone it in. So... I know that fans pressure artists to make more stuff, but I think that if the fans, especially the super dedicated ones, had to choose between waiting a little longer or getting something phoned in, they would choose waiting a little longer. And perfect example of bands who pull it off are like Tool, Meshuggah. Like there's so many examples of bands that take their time. But the key factor, I think, is that they have something that they've already done that people love. And so there's like this understanding. like Yeah, there's a trust. Yeah, there's a trust. When these guys take their time, it's not because they're fucking around. It's like (laughs) they need to take their time. So, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing. No, I don't think so either. It's really not even that long. A couple of years is not really that that big. There's so much music coming out every five seconds. Like, oh my God, man. It's like... Get lost in some new stuff too. You know, listen to as, as much as you can, and just you know, just be aware of what's coming out every, every day. You'll never you'll never run out of stuff to listen to. It's just it's, it's ridiculous. And then podcasts, man. Like everyone's listening to podcasts now. So you know, I do. I listen yeah, to great. I listen to tons of podcasts. <laughs> sometimes more than music, for sure. Switching gears a little, I want to hone in on something that you said earlier because at Riff Hard, our whole thing is rhythm guitar and the importance of picking and which is something that's neglected a lot in like the guitar education space. So you said you're left-handed and therefore your picking hand was sloppy, but clearly it's not sloppy anymore. So (laughs) how did you tackle that? Like what, what kind of stuff did you focus on? What was your approach? Right. So left-handed, but I play, I play right-handed. So just, I think just based off that alone, uh, obviously the strength being more in the left hand and the right hand, which is usually the engine room for a lot of rhythm guitar and just picking and being on time and dynamics and, you know, watching John play like a lot of that downstroke uh, intensity, like that's, that's all that coordination, which I never, I never really had. And, you know, I have, I have since worked on it quite a bit, but it's never really gotten to where I wanted it. 
my whole thing, this is going to sound really bad, especially when you're talking about education. My whole thing with, with <laughs> development as a guitar player was running from my weaknesses as fast as I possibly could. <laughs> Whoa, let me stop you for a second. I, <laughs> I don't think that's a bad thing. You remember when you were talking about how Jimmy Page, you never thought about Jimmy Page learning like the fifth fret and the seventh fret. Well, the thing is about those guitar gods you never heard them play what they were bad at, right? You only heard them play what they were great at. Exactly. I guarantee you that those guitar gods sucked at certain things. Sure. Yeah. That's a well-kept secret. <laughs> Imagine Ingve playing like a giant an actual classical guitar piece <laughs> or something. Yeah. You know? Can you imagine him yeah, playing or giant steps. puppets? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you only you only know them for what they're great at. There's something to be said for following what you're inclined to do that's kind of like a dirty like a taboo topic for a lot of people that are developing is a lot of people don't want to hear that they don't want to know that that's okay like it's okay to be bad at all this it's okay to suck at this but it really is okay it's fine it's totally fine man um so my whole thing well, as long as you rule at something else exactly but, yeah as long as you're working hard at at, uh, at at what you what you like and and my whole thing was just i played so much that the things i like it was like instead of Climbing over the wall, like instead of climbing over the wall, being proper steps with, with tuition and, okay, here's the way we're going to get over the wall. My thing was to stand in front of the wall and smash my head into the wall a million times until I broke through the wall. <laughs> I just kept beating over and over and over again just by sheer amount of time spent with the instrument and finding little little shortcuts. And I got really into, um, without even knowing, and everyone it's called hybrid picking now, but I was playing a lot with my middle finger as the, as the upstroke, just because I, I just couldn't, my right hand was just so uncoordinated that my, I looked down one day and I was just using my middle finger to add as the upstroke when I crossed the string. So whenever I crossed the string with an upstroke, it was my middle finger plucking it. And then I found this kind of balance between picking some of the notes and hammer on pulling off um, the rest of them. So there was this kind of whipping motion and how I how I played my left hand got real strong, and I developed these patterns. But man, some of the things I play, if I slow them down for a student when I was teaching, I can't slow it down because it's a muscle memory based thing. Because I was just doing these things over and over and over again, just trying, and then it was just naturally clean up over hours, just over the the maintenance and the, the reps in the gym. But it was never like sit down with the metronome. We're gonna clean it up. We're gonna think about the groupings. We're gonna think about where it lands on the one. No, it was just let's just do this a billion times until it starts to, it was like drawing five staff lines on a sidewalk with chalk and then throwing like rocks down and like, Oh, there's a melody. It's like, it was just completely accidental. It was just like that, that fuck it. Let's go with that. And then it just cleaned it up and just made it work. My biggest thing I would say to developing the technique was I played with very low gain. I always had just enough gain to where it gave me some, I want to use the right word here, some lube. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> enough gain to give the notes lubrication, but not enough to where I, I, I couldn't hear every every click and pop and every... Kept you honest. Yeah, and I used single <laughs> coils, so I had to I had to hit real hard, but I ran away from like timing for, for years, like really thinking about your rhythm, really thinking about, is this the right... Like I didn't know theory. I didn't, like I just, I just wanted... I just wanted to have a little sandbox, like my own little, ah, if I'm going to hang out here, I'm going to go fuck around here, I'll build a castle. That was my guitar playing, but I did it for eight hours a day. So you can imagine being in a sandbox, you'd, be, you'd after eight hours for a decade, you'd build a pretty nice sandcastle. It's just you're fucking around, right? Uh, and then what happened was 
I started to, to talk to these musicians who knew words like Lydian and Dorian. I'm like, who are these people? Who are, who's Dorian? And, and what happened was like, I couldn't have a conversation with musicians. I couldn't have, they're like, I'm at a piano player and they're talking, oh, okay, so this is an, uh, an F chord, but I'm putting the sharp 11 in the top or I've got, you know, and then we're substituting to an E flat. That's key. It's modulation. You know, like, what the fuck? So I got really frustrated because like, I loved music so much, but I couldn't, I didn't know the language. I didn't speak theory. I didn't speak it. So I went out of my way to work on that for, for quite a while. I remember getting books and the library, writing things down and talking to people. I mean, being in school in the cafeteria, writing out 13th arpeggios, like, like what the diminished and, and really throwing myself into that. And then once I understood more of that and how things connected across the neck, it stopped being just about getting these patterns and bullshitting my way through. And I started to be able to, to look at it and go, oh, this is what I've been doing. This is what key I'm in. I can apply it to these things. And just slowly over time, just slowly, things started to clean itself up. And then my timing got better and I started playing to drum machines and just improvising over just a static groove. Thought about timing and what's my guitar tone, my guitar tone then dictating how I played as opposed to how I play should work with any tone. It's like, no, no, no. All these things started to, to change and coalesce in different ways. But it was never the sort of learn something properly and then speed it up slowly and then move on to the next thing and, and then double back and get it and tighten it up. It was, it was spastic, man, like a Jackson Pollock painting. I just threw shit, you know, fucking there you go. It was, it was really spastic. And that's why I need, that's another reason why I needed to play so much because I just didn't see the through line. I didn't see the, you know, some people just get math. They look at, fuck yeah, man, I get advanced math you know, in grade 10 there's a guy in grade 12 advanced math and he's just like what he he still smokes a joint at school because he's so he doesn't he doesn't think about it it's like i was like man i don't get any of this it was the same thing with i didn't fucking brutal because i couldn't focus that's why i need so much so much practice and then that's why i say like i use that visual of like i see people beside me with a grappling hook going over the brick wall but i'm just like i don't have the grapple so i'm just banging my <laughs> until it's just oh okay there's an opening I'm gonna get you know that was my whole my whole development process <laughs> was smashing my head against a brick wall you know from doing these podcasts uh, what I'm what I'm really starting to notice John I'm sure you're noticing this too is like this is exactly probably what we're gonna say yeah I think we're, we're about to say the same thing yeah we've got like one group of like the Jason Richardsons and the Wes Hauk style dudes who do the the super regimented thing and they're incredible. But then we just talked to Andy James a couple of days ago who oh, took your Andy. exact same method. Man, I had such a good time with Andy. He's hilarious. That guy's funny. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's hilarious and phenomenal. And it, it just goes to show that it's one way isn't better than the other. But the thing that matters is that either way you go, you have to play a ton and like be super focused. That's the what matters. Yeah. I think that the amount of time that gets played is actually sort of the the beginning of the source for individuality in terms of voice. I think that that's probably what that attains to. The obsession, you know, of playing eight hours a day, that gives you the opportunity to find your own musical voice. And whether you do it the regimented way or, you know, everything chaotic, <laughs> being thrown into a pot, basically everything in the cupboards. Um, I think that that's what <laughs> creates the inner voice. That's kind of what I'm starting to believe. Because obviously I spent, my um, sort of practice regime is not too dissimilar from Nick's. 
Beautiful, John. Beautiful. But you know, one thing that you don't think about what people forget and what you don't realize in, in, until years later is the entire time you're playing and, and whether or not it's you know Jason's way or Andy's way, that different methodology, the thing you're developing is your ear. Is that thing where it's like you just have an understanding of, not to boil it down to something as simple as this, but does it sound good? Like what I mean is having good pitch and good intonation and good vibrato and good touch like these are things that are invaluable and these are fingerprints of every single guitar player how you get into a note or or when you hear a chord on the piano where does your ear go to like these are things you're developing passively without even thinking about it and that that comes from i think just the sheer amount of time around music and listening to to sound waves and notes and and talking about music and hearing other people and that's all happening I think that picking up on those things comes with experience as well. Cause like when we first pick up the instrument, we're so focused on playing just the note that we're missing all of those things around the note. Like what you just said, like vibrato, like the expression of sliding from one note to another and all of those things. And I think that that, you know, that's again, just the amount of time that you put in and the understanding of those expressions. Yep. Absolutely. It's all, it's all, everything's like that shit. It just comes with, with, uh, with the whole package. And I was lucky enough to look at myself and go, is, you know, is this good or, or does this sound good or self-awareness? Oh, that feels so good to hear a word you were thinking of, but couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I developed that real early. That's what I'm here I, for. I just, yeah, I had people around that, that were just much better than me. And, and, and I played in this world music band as the rhythm guitar player from the time I was 20 to like 25 and you know this is my first real experience playing live and and these guys were in their 40s at the time you know they're twice my age and they're just constantly shitting on me like your rhythms your rhythm sucks like okay now you got to play over these changes that you know tritone substitutions and and play secondary dominant chords and all these different harmonies that i'm like trying to play over and they're just like they're laughing like, you blew it tonight i'm like yep <laughs> you know just like i was pretty browbeaten early on so i was i was like okay i know i know what i need to work on and it was, that whole process was fun, though. I'm I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna hate about any of that. It was fun, man. Getting put in your place, well, fear itself. Like, what a great motivator for for becoming a better guitar player. <laughs> Get your shit together, Nick. Okay, <laughs> or you're out of the band. You know. I gotta say, fear. It's interesting because I see this in the riff hard group. I see this in the URM group. I get emailed about this all the time. Hit up people asking about motivation like how do I get motivation I'm like how do you not get motivation like do you not have like this terror <laughs> inside of you that if you don't get this done like you're fucked you're fu <laughs> and I've heard like Will Smith say this too so it's not just us weird musicians like yeah. like Will Smith talking about how he became like you know Will Smith and I think Jamie Foxx has said this too terror <laughs> pure fear yeah <laughs> Oh my God, man. Can you imagine being on a multi, multi, multi-million dollar film set and like having a, a a monologue? Like, holy fuck, man. Like, No, I can't. Playing a guitar solo in, in front of a crowd of 150 prog nerds with their arms crossed is nothing. It's fucking nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about yeah, fear? Yeah, oh I mean, my God. That would be quite terrifying, wouldn't it? Like just being in that moment, knowing you only get this, if you fuck it up for more than the amount of takes than you normally do. Especially if the director's up your ass. Everyone's <laughs> just going to be scaring you and giving you more of that fear on the inside. <laughs> oh, yeah, I couldn't imagine, man. I couldn't imagine. No, fear was a, a huge motivator. Dude, I had I had difficulty going into a music store 
as a kid because I was terrified to play in front of people. I, horrible anxiety. I still have that now. Yeah, man. You're not alone, dude. It's this weird thing. It just takes me back to being a young boy who was so hard on himself and so obsessed with like, this is my identity. I have to be good at it. And it was such a singular, th- I hid away from the world and just worked on music in, in the bedroom or the basement. Wouldn't even want my parents to hear me playing, you know? And then you go into a room full of people you think are all musicians at your at a guitar, guitar, or a, or a Long McQuaid or a guitar center, whatever country you live in. And you realize that they're just, they're just practicing and playing and gigging too. They're, we're all the same. But it's just, I had this unbelievable fear of, they're all going to laugh at me or like, I'm going to get made. Fun. It's like, well, what would have, what would have really happened? They would have been like, oh, this guy's playing a riff. He's, he's loud. Someone would have been I, I silently make the sale, judging like, you. By the fucking guitar. Yeah. It's like, he doesn't, he'll forget about you two seconds later. You know, it's just, it was just this, this thing you hmm. de- I developed in my head, but man, it was, it was quite the motivator. And I do all these guitar clinics and I travel all over doing this stuff. I've gotten really good now at just going up and playing and, not really thinking too much about it, but my whole thing with, with getting on stage now is just, I just want to get up there. Like, just let me get up there. Let me just get, let's just get up there. It's not, it's not <laughs> like, oh, okay, I'll sip. I have a, okay, I think about it. No, it's like, let's just, come on, let's just get this shit going. Like, even when I, I did, I did a tour in the summer with, with um, BT Bam and Contortionist, and this is so ridiculous, but a lot of bands, like that kind of whole intro thing where you're building suspense, I just walk in on stage, like, let, let's go, come on, nope. Get up to, let's just, I want to be on stage. Let me start playing. Let me just get this over with. Like there's no, it's just, let's go. Like there's, if, as soon as that's out of the way, then I'm like, okay, now I can relax. You're, you're lucky in that aspect then. <laughs> you are extremely lucky. Cause like I still hide behind a singer. So oh, yeah. I never have that feeling of let's go. I have the feeling yeah. of fear, anxiety. Sure. Dread. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, Again, I don't think you're the only one, and it also depends what I'm doing. I had to, I had to do um, some stuff last, well, pre-COVID, where I was traveling to some of these countries, and and no one speaks a, a word of English, and I was on my own. It was it was with a company that they didn't send a rep with me, so I was I was on my own traveling, and uh, you get up there, and it's just like you got no one to talk to all day, and you're just like you don't know what gear you're gonna have, and, and you you don't know, and then you get up there, and the there's way more people than you expected, and you're like, oh, why did I? Why didn't I just stay home? Like I could have just been at home right now, just working. <laughs> it's like there's still that. There's you know, it, it comes, it ebbs and flows, right? Yeah. But for the most part, I'm I'm pretty oh, good with that it now. You know, same. Ah, oh, yes, that same feeling happened to me when I was in China. Oh, China. Oh, yeah. That exact same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so. Oh, um, yeah. Like. Obviously, the the language difference is really important in this particular thing that you just said, because I had obviously someone translating, but the person translating didn't fully understand what I was talking about. Not even close. So that that fear every single night kept circulating. What is he saying that I eat feet or something? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now you see on on the... uh, what's the hell's in it? WeChat that John Brown eats feet. You know, it's like, that's the whole thing going on. <laughs> but, uh, but no, no, that, that's, that's, that's an interesting one, man. What company was it that sent you to do that clinic tour? Uh, that company, I did a bunch of stuff with, with these guys. Ah, uh, yeah. Mesa Boogie. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have a rep. No, I was on my own for that. So on the topic of fear, one thing that I've always told people is, and this is not just like fear of performing. Like I think a lot of people have fear of like getting a project started, right. fear oh, of yeah. releasing music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. just like fear of everything related to 
possibly failing at something. One thing I always tell people is just say, fuck it and do it. Like, cause that fear, like you're saying, if we're saying that people like Will Smith have it, you guys have it. I've had it pretty much almost everyone I know, except for psychopaths have it. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, psychopaths don't have it. And so they got the advantage in that department. But if you're not a psychopath, you're going to have to deal with fear. And there's plenty of people who have done all right, despite that. And I think that the the best way to go about it is just say, fuck it and do it anyways. Just ignore it. Just fuck it. The fuck it clause is, is a good one to enact every so often. You know, there's, there's other things too that I find plague me. And that is, I get this weird thing sometimes when I'm, when I'm starting something, when I'm recording something, I get this, like this kind of sadness. It's just like a part of me knows that, and this is jaded as, as hell. So anyone listening to this, just take it, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But like part of me goes, this will never be as good as what I'm hearing in my head. It will just, it will never, <laughs> ever be as good as what I'm hearing. And I just get like, it's like, oh, should I keep doing it then? Like, if it's just, like, there's this weird self, there's also, I'm an, an emotional mess at the best of times. So like, I go through all this stuff or, I, or I'm on a, on a flight somewhere and I'm not, I'm not afraid of playing. Or I'm not worried of playing. And It's just more so like, I'm sad that I'm, away from the house or I'm away from every, like there's all these things or like you go and do a session, maybe you have to fly to a different country and do a session and you're on a, you're on different gear and maybe you and the engineer or the co-producer had a bad fight one time or you heard he's talking shit about you, but you don't want to bring it up and you're just like bombed out and you're just like, why am I fucking doing this to myself again? Like what that, that is a weird thing with all that too. And then you start thinking about as a musician without a stable job, you start thinking, man, money would be really nice. Like I would love some money. You know, like there's just, there's a million fear. Fear is a part of the recipe, but, it, but a lot of times it's just general. And then dude, other things like, for example, it's like, you'll get really happy about something. Now this, this sounds insane. So again, bear with me. You get really happy about something, but then you get bummed because you know, you can't sustain that excitement about this idea for more than a couple. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? There's all sorts of these weird, there's these weird little landmines that you're always, Oh shit. There's one right there. Oh shit. There's one right there. You know, and I'm type one diabetic. So like for me, my main focus of life is always just like, what's my blood sugar? What's my blood sugar? Is it high? Is it low? Am I feeling good? This and that. So like there's, there's like just health shit. It's like a computer with too many windows open. It's just like, oh, that window's still running. And there's a lot. <laughs> oh man, like the bandwidth on that website is way too high. And all these other ones are like just living somewhere in the background. It's like, there's so much stuff <laughs> constantly running. And then, and then if that's not enough, then you're always just second guessing yourself. You're just, is this good? Why did I do that? what the fuck was with that guitar? <laughs> Why did I hire that drummer? There's just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's so much going on. We're complicated. He has the fear. <laughs> Dude, I relate. I yeah. relate. It's like this constant battle with this voice that just tries to tear everything down in this weird way. Like I get this. So I travel for Nail the Mix Every oh, single yeah. month. And yeah, that's doing, cool. Doing that's cool. cool shit. Like, yeah, that I, like goals. Like, we've accomplished a lot of goals, but then every time I'm about to leave, I just get kind of like, why the fuck am I going? Like, I don't want to go. And then I go and it's fine. But like, and, I but you. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I feel like a lot of my life is figuring out ways to combat that voice. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. I don't think you're alone in this. No, definitely not. Because definitely, I, I, I've talked to lots of other other people. Uh, one guy I'm, I'm really, really good buddies with, John, you know him too, David Maxim. Yeah. We've had long discussions about the idea of leaving the house to go and be away from everything and, and everyone. And Because David's, David's truly, a, like he's a homebody. He likes to work in his studio and... And we've, you know, genuinely when I get going, like when I get touring and I get my schedule and I'm, I'm in the, in the heat of everything, I'm fine. I'm good to go. Right. It's just when I get too much time where I've been pulled out of the bubble, you know, that bubble and I'm like, I'm out of it now. (laughs) That to me is the hardest thing. It's just getting that mindset back. I get the same thing when I have to leave trips too. Like when the trip, like if I'm at the end of a trip and then it's time to go back to the airport to go home, I'm like, fuck, do I really want to go home? Do I really want to go home? Sometimes I'll put the flight off a few days and just (laughs) stay in a hotel. Yeah. It's so weird. I I don't understand where that comes from. So basically it sounds like for you, the way to fight it is to just get into the routine, like just basically jump into the cold water and do it. Yeah. Well, that's again, that's that whole thing of like, fuck it. Let's, let's go. Like, come on, let's go. Let's, let, let's get started. I also love the idea a, a lot of times. And I love the idea of sort of crystallizing all these thoughts you had in your head when you were younger of like, Oh, I, I can't imagine what I'm going to get to do. Am I going to travel? Am I going to be relatively successful? Am I going to get to play? Like you're doing it. Okay. Remember you are now doing that thing that you wanted you, Nick, you're doing it. Hey, over here, look at me. You're doing it. You know, like that whole thing. <laughs> it's like just remembering that you're on this path and you don't have to be here if you don't want to. Like you don't have to do it. You can go home. You can get a job. Asshole. You know, it's like, you know what I related to? I'm a huge, my, one of my favorite just art forms in general is, is stand-up comedy and, and how much of an isolating oh, yeah. thing that journey is for those. Like I love, you guys probably, you guys know Bill Burr. I would assume you guys maybe oh, know. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So Burr is like oh, a 30-year yeah. vet in the game, right? And you listen to him talk about the old days when he would go and do the college campus comedy tours. Where he would just go into the lunch hour, like at a college campus in the lunchroom, and they would just say, okay, we don't have a mic for you, but you're going to entertain these kids. And he had like an half blonde, <laughs> blonde curly hair, and he's or um, red curly hair, just like looking like an outsider, right? And he would just go up there, and his whole thing was like just fucking get through it. Like just in like, he's like, I'm driving back from somewhere in Idaho to New York and just yelling in the car the whole way home. I'm like, there's something self-deprecating and something like you're putting the work in. There's something valuable to, you've done the hard thing. You you did the thing and you didn't have to and, and it everything was working against you, but you did it. There's a valuable personal gain, I think from that, you know, just like, like for example, you guys know just, just virtue of getting up in the morning, getting your shit packed and going to the airport and just getting to the place. Like that's even that alone is like, holy fuck, man, that was a lot of work. Yeah. Why am I (laughs) wasting 12 hours doing this? Exactly. That's just getting to the place. And that's like, that has nothing to do with your skill set. But then you realize, well, yeah, I've developed the skill set to get to the place, which is like, wow, I have another unique skill set that came with being a musician. (laughs) It's just a weird thing. Like I find... I find the the grind and I find the process and the, the mentality and being a strong-minded person to be able to do this. Whether or not you're on your own or with a band, it doesn't matter. Because even with a band, sometimes it's harder because you just want everyone to shut the fuck up sometimes. <laughs> All of this stuff I, I find really, really interesting and really valuable, even though it's sad. <laughs> so 
sometimes to get started on it. You know, like you hear these comedians talk about, and, and I've done it too, where it's like, John, you've done it too. And I'm sure we will both do it again at some point where you go and tour for no financial gain. You, you, you lose money, but you still have to, uh, you still have to do it. And it's, and when you're doing it, you're like, it's great. But then you're like, I hate it. I love it. I hate it. I hate it. It's just, but you have to do it. It's just like, it's part of the thing and you develop as a person and you change and you grow. And that's at the heart of it for me is like, also, John, you just said you've been to China. Like, how many people do you know have been to China for music? Not many. Not many. It's exactly. Like, that's, that's pretty cool. That's, that's, even though, you know, you've seen probably the same shit I've seen in China where you're like, how can you live like this? At least you've done it, you know, and, and, and you've experienced <laughs> it. And, and there's something cool about all that. And, and AL, you doing, you know, Nail the Mix, which is an amazing, amazing series that you guys do. It's like, just even maybe you're, you're flying and you meet with your, buddies and filming a, a mix session that in itself is like how many people get to do that like i don't know anybody that gets to do that but then you're like oh i yeah, just want to go home amazing. it's like okay you can go home <laughs> dude you can go home at any time you can go <laughs> you know what it is man if you're on the outside all you see are the results you see the cool stuff and so if you're on the outside you have a very one-dimensional view of what the big picture is like the reality of actually doing something. But if you're actually doing something, I mean, life is not one dimensional life has, there's no such thing in life. That's all good or all bad. There's going to be multiple facets to everything. And so to pretend like every single aspect of it is cool. Like, yeah, we get to do this thing that we worked really, really hard to do that not many people get to do. But to say that every single aspect of it is the dream or something like that would be disingenuous. Absolutely. And just, we'd be bullshitting. <laughs> yeah. If I we can't were even pretend. That. I like, can't even pretend. Yeah, exactly. This shit's complex, <laughs> but obviously the upside is high enough to keep doing it, but there's no way to honestly say that it's as simple as we get to do this cool thing. So just, just appreciate it. Don't think about any of the stuff that's not cool about exactly, it or any yeah. of the stuff that like fucks with your head about it. Just ignore all that. It's not real. Just be happy that you get to do this thing because you're one of the few. That would be kind of, how are you actually supposed to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well said. <laughs> I actually think that one thing can be sort of taken for, you know, not to sound horrible here, but the normal people, like when I say normal people, people that haven't toured or, you know, that have, you know, just a job and don't do the weird shit that we do because we're all responsible adults, responsible adults. Yeah. Not the psychopathic kids that didn't grow up. Peter Pan syndrome. bunch. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that the best way to sort of explain it is very similar to when, you know, you live within your means, you know, like some people say, oh, I wish I had more money to do this or, but then once you get more money, you end up spending it anyway. So you don't actually have any more money. And I think it's pretty similar with the situation of touring. Yes, you're doing this because you enjoy this one moment. And if something about that changes, it's not really going to stop you from doing it, touring, because you love it so much, you know, spending 12 hours on a plane. Um, But then you'll get to a point where you could go into first class, but you'll still have to spend 12 hours on that fucking plane. It might make it a little (laughs) bit better. (laughs) (laughs) but it's you know i mean it's like yeah you're just trying to like the things that there's always going to be something that you hate and something that you want better but it's not really going to change it that much where it's still you know you're still going to hate being on that plane for 12 hours basically is what i'm saying well it's because everywhere you go you're still taking yourself with you i think a lot of people look at these goals much in the way that 
someone will look at moving to another town as like, you know, that idea that I'm going to move to another town and my life's going to be different, which is not true. Like, cause you're still taking you with you. And so whatever problems you caused where you live now, you're going to probably create similar situations there. And so <laughs> we need total recall. If your brain has a tendency to be fucked up, Unless you actually fix what's fucked up about it and do that work, you know, like therapy and self-help and all that shit, you're still taking your brain with you. So, and your brain is uh, the same regardless of your external circumstance. If you're so shallow or weak that your external circumstance can actually change you that much, then, uh, I mean, good for you and you're lucky. But I think it's kind of naive to think that something as shallow as a circumstance like getting to fly first class or not is going to be the difference between you being happy or not. It, That's really well said. Yeah. We're way more complicated than that. And so, yeah. I don't know, man. Like after that China flight on the way back that I did in first class, it's the first time I got off a plane where I wasn't livid. Well, <laughs> yeah, dude. Yes. Obviously the experience is better if you're flying in first and obvious and Obviously, making more money is better than making less money, but the whatever pathology you've got or like mental deficiencies, like <laughs> money and first class are not changing those. So, no, that's very, very true. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you want to get past them, you got to do the work to get past them. And I think actually the reason, and not to get morbid, but the reason that you see successful people still commit suicide is precisely because of this, like becoming successful doesn't change who you are. Like, I think a lot of people think I'm just going to accomplish these goals and then I'll be happy or the void will be filled. And then uh, they get there and it's like, I'm still me. I still feel the same, but I did all these things. So what the fuck? There's no hope. I really believe that because of, of all the, like, you know, we're talking traveling and, and whatever, first class, that whole thing, which, yeah, it, it is, it is very nice to, to, to go to the front of the plane with everybody in a suit when you look like, I do. And they look at you like, <laughs> that's, that to me is the best part of first class. It's just that like incredulous, like the fuck is this guy doing? No, what are you doing yeah, here? Yeah. But you know, like going to, going to some of these countries and just seeing, just seeing things that, that you would just would have never seen or, or traveling. And, and cause you know, you, you're only on stage for an hour, right? It's like, it's how you live your life. Those 23 hours. And can you be content with where you are? And I always look down at the map, like, where am I on the map? And I picture it myself with a tether back home and the further I go away, like that tethers, it, it starts to feel like I'm further out in the ocean on a boat by myself. I'm like, okay, st remain, like, can you still be happy with who you are out here? Like, remember, you're going to go home at some point, but it's like, can you be generous? Can you be kind? Can you take the time to meet everybody? Can you have a good conversation go for a nice dinner and, and just remain, remain yourself wherever you are? Because, you know, we've all seen you go you go somewhere and, and the guy's there and you can tell he's fucking miserable and he doesn't want to be there and he's an asshole and you just have a bad mental image of this person. It's like whenever I go somewhere, I try to, okay, work on yourself. Like try to be, try to be the same as you are at home. Try to be a nice person. It doesn't always work, of course. But it's like I feel like me traveling and, and doing that and, and meeting all these people and having these situations while jet lagged and feeling sick – it's almost like uh, running around the block with weights on. It's like these things feel like I'm it's pulling me down, but I get I get to still work on myself and I still get to try and continue to develop as a person because it's not just you're going to play guitar. It's like you you're still you and you have to you have to bring something to the table. It's you just you're not gonna be coming back. It's like it's not gonna happen anymore. So you talking about just 
you know, you taking yourself everywhere. It's like, I, I feel like that's a, that's a thing everyone forgets. It's like, just cause you're going there does, does it mean you don't have to, to try and be a good person and a, and a nice person and, and communicate with others and be someone that people want to be around even, you know, that's a, that's a huge thing for me. Cause you know, especially if someone's paying all that money for you to be there, it's like trying to be a good person, <laughs> you know, try and take a nice version <laughs> of yourself out there. It's hard, man. It's really, really hard. Especially when you're hungry, jet lagged. Oh my God. Get the fuck away from me is all you want to say, right? But And you can't order a coffee. <laughs> it's all part of the process, man. It's a huge, huge learning process. And even at, in mid thirties, it's like, I'm not even close. I'm not even close to where I want to be. Long, long way to go. Do you have any like uh, rituals or like things you do when you are in the moment and you're not quite in the right frame of mind to like, snap yourself out of it? Or is it more like just a daily discipline of trying to not to sound woo woo about it, but like have a little gratitude or like, do you do something to get yourself there? Absolutely. I, again, I mentioned being diabetic. I find I'm completely ruled by, you know, I have my glucometer with me all the time and test strips and my insulin. I'm fully, fully ruled emotionally by where my numbers are, you know, being, are they too high? Which means you, you know, you're, blood sugars through the roof and your, your, your mouth is dry and you have to go to the bathroom all the time and you're sweating and you're confused and, and versus if it's too low, then you're shaky and you can't even hold a fork. And like for me getting it right in the middle, like that balancing act, but if I see, okay, before we go, it, I'll check, you know, you can't see it, but my fingertips have like pinprinks all over them from, from checking my blood. It's like, I'll look at my blood sugar. And if in the morning, if it's too high, I like start off. It's like, Oh fuck. It's Oh no, like it's going to start off. Okay, hang on. What do you need to do to get it there? Like it starts off with that extra worry just off the top. Or if I wake up, like I've woken up in hotel rooms in the middle of the night with blood sugar so low. I'm like, I stand up and I can first, I just fall down. I'm, I'm on the floor. Like it's horrible. And I'm sweating and I'm like shake, like shaking. And I hope to God in my backpack, I have one more apple because that I stole from the lounge before I got on the flight. Oh, thank God it's there. And I eat the apple and I go back to bed. And then the next day I'm fucked because my body's like recovering from this. Uh, so that is a huge proponent to how I'm going to feel the next day. But while that's all happening, I'm still trying to be like, remember, like, remember why you're here. Like you want to, you want to represent yourself well and you want to represent the company you're here on behalf of, or if it's your band, you want to, people that bought tickets, see the show, you want to, you know. But for me, man, my health is the number one thing that sort of dictates how my day is going to go, which makes sense, right? That's a pretty big part of what's going on. But just that damn number, because it's not just a number, that number represents discipline, it represents health, it represents, you know, how are you going to feel tomorrow? Because it's usually like the next day, I, I feel it if it's a high or low. So, you know, I have to make sure when I'm trying, and that's, that's actually to, to go a little further with that during the COVID being home for a few months, it's been fine because I've just really been able to focus on the numbers, you know, those numbers really, really heavily. And that's not going away. So it's like, you got to get a handle on that shit. You don't want to lose a foot. <laughs> to me, the best thing about COVID has, uh, there's, there were some uh, health issues I wanted to fix. Gave me the time to do it. Good for you. In order to keep yourself optimal, I guess, a lot of the things I needed to fix were as a result of traveling all the time and not being able to get into a good routine. What do you do to keep yourself optimal? Obviously, Sounds like the rock and roll lifestyle will not work for you. No, impossible. I'd be dead by now. <laughs> yeah. So you have to keep yourself disciplined, which is extra hard when 
traveling, what do you do? Like, I'll give you an example of what happens if I'm not disciplined. So I ran out. I was I, I was in the uh, airport in in Hong Kong at that really beautiful airport, that huge one. And I'm in the lounge and I'm sitting there and I'm eat, eating something. And I I had a I had dish that I didn't realize they didn't. Usually in the lounge they put, you know, if you fly enough, you visit enough of these stupid lounges where the, the, you just have that bad coffee and the horrible vegetables and just this. <laughs> but they always list the fucking ingredients like just these horrible lounges. You're like, oh my god. They list the ingredients like it's got this and this. And as a diabetic, I always look. Okay, cool. There's no low carb. There's no sugar. Okay. And I sat down. I ate something. And I'm like, oh shit. I'm okay. Well, this meal's got no carbs in it, so it's fine. My blood sugar's at this amount. This plus this food, I should be fine. I didn't have any insulin left. So I'm like, okay, the problem there is, okay, I have, I have X amount of time to get home, you know, 20 hours till I get home. I don't have any more insulin. So I got to either not eat anything for the next 20 hours or be very specific and drink a lot of water. What happened was the dish had something in it they didn't list and my blood sugar fucking shot through the roof. Like, for example, if a blood sugar is supposed to be I think the UK uses the same system we do, but the American system is a little different, but it's supposed to be between basically four and eight. Mine was probably at 17 at this point. So that's very high. You're basically diabetic if you're like at eight, essentially, if you're not, I'm not a doctor, but I I can be relatively safe in saying that's too high. Playing one on this podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was I checked my blood sugar when I was in the seat and I'm like, oh, fuck. So what I had to do, listen to this shit, I had to go into the bathroom on the flight and I started doing jumping jacks and push-ups. Wait, wait, how did you do push-ups in the, on an airplane bathroom? Disabled, right? It was big enough. It was a, it was a big craft. In the, in the airplane, I like had to put my legs on the wall and I, and I put toilet paper all down on the floor, doing push-ups in the bathroom. And then I'm doing things where I'm like leaning against the wall and like doing those leg stand things to your core. Mm-hmm. And my heart's, I'm soaked, dripping with sweat. I come out of, imagine, this is comedy. Imagine seeing someone come out of the washroom <laughs> on an airplane bathroom after you've heard all that commotion. He comes out with sweat and he's red. Like I sit down in my seat. My blood sugar dropped. It was down to like nine. It went down seven points. I was like, fuck. So I waited a bit. I went back and did a little bit more and I got it down to like six. But then what started happening was my blood sugar started dropping, kept dropping, kept dropping too low. Now it's down to three and I'm shaking and I'm, I have to call the flight attendant over to get some food and she's got nothing but like pretzels. I eat the pretzels. Blood sugar goes too fucking high again. Starts to go up too high. <laughs> so like I'm just in this fucking... Groundhog day of hell of blood sugar, right? So I'm just like, oh, and like that's what happens. And I still have like nine hours of this flight left, so I'm, I know I know what my destiny is at that point. My destiny is the balance beam, which is what I call it. You know, the balance beam. Like, okay, oh, too high. Okay, bring it. <laughs> so, so that's what happens if you're not on the ball. Like that's that's you should never run out of insulin. You should know what you're eating, et cetera, et cetera. What does it mean to be not disciplined for you? So could you define what, what is not disciplined Nick like? Not disciplined me, first of all, is the, the thought of blood sugar is not the first thing I'm always thinking about. The second that's not like there has, since I became type one diabetic, it's, you know, whatever, 10 years or so, uh, it has been the only thing. Like if, if you, if you think of a video game where you're aiming down sights and that reticle, that's, that reticle is blood sugar. Like that's, all, and then everything else is what you see after. It's like music, you know, taking a shit. That's all after, right? But like <laughs> blood sugar, it's like, there it is. Okay, fucking it's focus. It's just in, in front of me. Like even right now as we're talking, all I'm thinking about in the back of my mind is like, 
time did I eat? What did I eat? It's just, it's ridiculous. It's so, I don't mean to complain because it's really not as bad as something as like, as a cancer. Well, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I'm not complaining. I, don't think I, you're complaining. I swear to God. But anyway, uh, just to kind of go on, I typically eat, like if I'm touring or traveling, like catering or if there's, which there's no catering ever in the, the, the level of touring I do. But like if the, there's a rider in backstage, there's like a bunch of bags of chips and a 12 pack of beer. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go find a Whole Foods. Like that's what I have to do. Or I'm going to go to Walmart and I'm going to get a bag of broccoli and eat it with a plain yogurt. That's what I'm going to eat. Like, <laughs> Oh my God. That, that's my life. Because I can't eat sugar unless I take a lot of insulin, but the problem, no carbs. So a lot of stuff that I don't eat and people go, well, you don't have to be that stringent, Nick. It's a diabetic. It's like, okay, that's what works for you. But for me, who's always traveling has to be laser focused with it. It it could be the difference of going on stage and dropping to three and not being able to hold a pick versus like, you know, being a little bit high. So the show, you sweat a bit and the sugar arcs down a little bit in the middle of the show. I had one on that, uh, actually that that Pliny tour, John, that I met you, we were playing in uh, Portland. And I remember going right before we went on stage, like three minutes before we went on stage, I was just like, oh, fuck. And like, I had the guitar on my, and it felt like it weighed a thousand pounds. My arms were so heavy. And then I just like ran to the back and there was a banana. Bananas are so high in sugar. So like it's diabetic. I avoid them unless I'm like on death's door basically, not to be too dramatic, but I ate the banana. And then within like 15 minutes, I had to postpone my set a little bit. I was like, okay, good to go. You know, fucking good to go. It was just like, in fact, it was such a big obstacle that my, my doctor, I'll tell you the story of how it all happened. My doctor, um, my endocrinologist, the basically metabolism doctor said to me like, okay, you know, you're, you're diabetic now and, uh, we need to take you to the hospital and, um, you probably can't tour anymore. Or at all. Because I was doing a little bit of traveling when I was in my early 20s and they kind of wanted me to stop. And I said, I have to go to, uh, I had to go to like, I think Germany the next day. I had a flight the next day. And he's like, no, you can't. You, you have to cancel it. You have to go to the hospital and we have to get your sugar down and put out the fire essentially. And I was like, no. He's like, I can't force you to. So whatever you want to do, here's your insulin. So I remember I flew. I didn't go to the hospital. Fuck that. Because I wanted to do this trip. <laughs> I'm in my seat and there's a guy we, I, it was one of those rare flights where, you know, that Frankfurt flight, the Lufthansa one, I'm sure, John, you've done a bunch of times where you get in there and like, well, you're closer to the UK. What am I talking about? You're, you're not that far from, from Germany. You don't have to do that overnight <laughs> flight. But um, there, was the seat, there was the seat in between us, which was, which was open. So I was like, cool. And I remember like pulling my needles out the first time and like putting the, the needle head on there. Like, oh, fuck. And, you know, and like the guy's like, what the fuck? And like figuring out how to administer the insulin and like pricking my thumb and blood and <laughs> fucking it up and like blood just, all, oh shit. And, like wiping it up. And like the guy was probably like, and I was just figuring out how to, <laughs> how to diabetes basically, you know, and I took too much at one point and my blood just dropped and I had to get some food. Man, it was crazy. But just, um, what I'm saying is like, regardless of what I need to, to, what I need to get me to that point where I'm optimal, like it has not stopped me from pursuing this. And it, it, it will not, as long as it's something you're responsible with. I can't go out. I don't drink beer, you know, cause it's just carbs. And when you drink beer or you drink, I drink a little bit of, a little bit of wine every so often, maybe gin, which has no carbs, no sugar. So you can have some of that or vodka, but I'm never, I'm never hammered. I never get like drunk, drunk. I never get inhibitions low enough to where I go, fuck it, I'll have pizza tonight. It's like, don't do it because you can't get to that point because then the next two to three days, you're just, you're just trying to get back on, on top of it. You're just, you're, you're 
you know, um, you know what, fuck, I was going to name some names, but I don't want to do that. But there was some musicians that one guy last couple of years, he died from not taking care of his famous musician. He died singer from not taking care of his diabetes. And I was actually about to say that, dude, that I've known diabetics. It can happen, man. Who eat pizza and just you don't say- die from you don't die from diabetes. You die from complications from diabetes, you know, like yes. stroke or you have uh, seizures and you hit your head and they find you passed out. And you, you, just, you just die. You just, you're dead. Because your your heart and your brain need good blood pressure and need blood sugar. Without blood sugar, man, like having a low. And I'm sure you guys deal with your own shit. So I could say you don't know what it's like to have a low blood sugar, but like it's fucked to have a real low blood sugar is f- so fucked up, man. It's like it happens every so often. I don't even know my own name. I don't know my fucking name, dude. It's like I don't know where I am. I'll wake up in the middle of the night. And I'm like. What the fuck? It's crazy, dude. It's fucking crazy. So anyway, just trying to be trying to be on top of it because I, I love I, I do love traveling. I do love touring as much as there's ups and downs. We talked about that. But I do love it because because it feels like uh, I'm getting to experience something I, I always you know was working towards or want or, or was dreaming about doing. Diabetes will not get the, get the fuck out of here. Get get out of here. You, you will not stop me, you know. <laughs> I think that that's impressive. I know lots of people who have issues that they don't let the issue define them. No way, man. No way. It's just a matter of adjusting your lifestyle to to make it work if if you want something bad enough. Absolutely. That's that's it. Exactly. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, definitely. Knowing lots of people on tour that do have ailments and they, you know, obviously do their best because they enjoy it so much. And I think I remember actually speaking to you about this when we last saw each other. Cause I didn't, I didn't know you were diabetic until that, that gig actually. Um, but yeah, interesting. We all have like different, um, everything from mental to physical problems, being musicians, just going on tour. Exactly, dude. <laughs> and if anyone feels weird about it, it's like, oh man, I feel like this is going to stop me. It's like some things, yeah, let's be real. Some things will probably make you have to stop sleeping on a bandwagon. <laughs> but is that a really a bad thing? No. Um, but but <laughs> it, it's quite nice, apparently. It is quite nice. Yeah, it is quite nice. But a lot of stuff, it's like people are afraid to talk. I've had injuries too. Like I've had bad tendonitis and like all sorts of bad shit where I've had to just stop playing. And it's like, man, people don't want to talk. A lot of people just don't want to admit. It's like, we're just bags of meat and water, dude. Like shit's going to go wrong. It's just how you approach <laughs> it. You're just a big old bag yeah. of water, man. It's not, it's not a big deal. I completely, completely respect that. Obviously, like you said, there are some things that uh, are too severe to, yes, you know, so that aside, okay, so let's just say that aside so that nobody comes after me for saying this. I really do think that if something is manageable, if you do let it get in the way, then that's fine. That's your choice. But it just means you didn't want what you were going to do bad enough. And that's fine. I feel people should just be honest with themselves. It is totally fine. I actually at one point considered just, I was like, yeah, maybe I should just stop, you know, stop traveling. And I kind of made a, a mental sort of two category chart where it's like pros and cons, you know, I kind of did that. And ultimately the, the, the pros outweighed the cons by a little bit. It's just like, I got too much I, I need to see. And I, too much, you know, for me, dude, the, I, I'm so lucky with, with Schechter when I get to travel with them. The food I get to eat, that's like, oh my God. I think about going to, you know, Italy and going to Parma and eating that 
aged Parmesan yeah. cheese. I'm like, I gotta go. <laughs> it's worth just that first bite of Parmesan, just that hunk of cheese, you know, and the, some of that fish and some of that meat. You're like, okay, I, I'm going to keep traveling. <laughs> okay. So speaking, change gears a little bit. You were talking about how you don't know what gear you're going to play. And uh, that brings up the whole topic of tone in the hands versus tone in the gear. Right. The age old debate. <laughs> yeah. So where, where do you stand on it? Because obviously when you go and do these clinics and you don't know what you've got in front of you, you still got to make it work. Whereas when you're in the studio, you probably are in the most ideal of circumstance. What keeps it sounding Nick Johnston no matter what? You know, every time this this topic comes up, I feel like I have the an answer to it, but it changes so much and, and I feel depending on where my confidence is as a player, I can answer I can answer it and sometimes I'm like, how do I approach it? Or or what was I thinking when I was doing this? And it, it a lot of it is just like the mentality of that is it's like it's just smoke through my fingers. I don't I don't have a, a an obvious response to that. Because a huge part of it is is just like being comfortable in your setting, like just letting yourself, just submitting to like, oh, this is what I have. This is what I'm going to use and just making decisions based on that rather than I wish I had this. I wish I had that. It's like, well, you don't. Are you going to, what are you going to do? You do not have it. Um, I grew up basically playing one guitar, just essentially one guitar. And I had different amps over the years. And the one thing I noticed was over enough time, I can't get every amp to sound the same. It's just, I couldn't do it. But what I could control was like when the guitar was unplugged just by itself, it's like my vibrato always sounds the same, my tone, my rhythms. Okay. So what does that mean? It's like, I changed the thought process to play to the tone versus this is how I play. Why isn't the tone reacting to it? Like if I have a low gain amp, I'm going to play shit that sounds good with a low gain amp. Like I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to do that. Now in my style of music where it's not, it's not super riffy and relies on a, on a tight gate or relies on a lot of gain. Like I can get away with, with playing blues, your stuff on an orange amp, or I can do it on a Kemper or I can do it on an Axe effects, or I can do it on a, a hot rod and it just whatever. It doesn't matter. I've used just about every, every amp on, on a tour somewhere, somewhere in the world where the distributor didn't have Mesa or the distributor didn't have Friedman or whatever, whatever amp you were using at the time. We got a, uh, we got a orange amp with a busted gain channel, but we got a tube screamer. I'm like, okay, okay. We're going to see what happens tonight, <laughs> you know? And, and I've gotten through it and whether or not I sounded good, I do what I can. It's like, I try my best. A huge part of it is, is just to not let it scare you. I think it's just embrace it see what happens to your playing, see what changes. Maybe you'll surprise yourself. A lot of what I do on that instrumental stuff is it's my shit is it's, it's all lead guitar. It's all melodies and, and, um, a few riffy parts, but not, nothing like what you're doing with, with monuments or with flux, John, some solos. And then a lot of times in, in the clinic world, cause in the, in the touring with the band, I, I have an, usually an amp backline, so I'm fine. But what I've learned to do, and this has changed my playing completely is a lot of time at the clinics, I will just play solo guitar for the whole night. I'll just improvise just without no tracks, no songs. I'll spend two hours. I'll go up and I'll play just improvise for 15 minutes, shoot the shit with, with the crowd, play some more. And shoot, you know, like, and what that has done is it's made me go like, let's see if I can captivate or hold people's attention just as 
what I have as a, as a musician without my tracks and stuff like that, which is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And it's definitely come a long way. But when I, when I kind of go into it with that mindset, I'm not as worried about the gear anymore because I'll just do a sound check and be like, okay, I can make, fuck it. I'll just play clean tonight. And it's like, okay, now everything I'm playing is, is clean. It's like, that's my whole night right there. I'll just play with a clean tone. Or, oh, that's a British tone I, have, I haven't used in, in a while. How does it sound when I play and then I'll switch to the back pickup? Oh, oh shit, there's a lot of noise here. So let me move to, oh, okay, the noise is gone. This is where I'm going to stand tonight. So I'm going to play. Like, you just kind of make it work. You, you use this attitude of, I can do this. That positive attitude, you know. That reminds me of something. Uh, speaking of Ingve, because we brought him up earlier, I used to know him a lot when I was a teenager. He worked with my dad, actually, on Magnum Opus. That's so funny. No way. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 absolutely true. What's your father's name again? Eric's Eric's mentioned your father's before. Yoel Levy. That's right. That's right. He's mentioned him. Yeah. He con- he conducted Magnum Opus. I was uh, on Ingve's tour bus once. It was like 17 or something, and he was warming up for a show, and it was like he was playing through a like a pig nose or something, <laughs> and he sounded exactly like Ingve. Well, that was the first time that I realized that gear's cool, but it only takes you so far. It I mean, does, he literally yeah. sounded exactly like Ingve, and you think of Ingve as like playing through Marshalls with those with his Strat and all that, and a certain type of tone and the guitar players rigs are very much idolized but here i am in a bus with this dude playing through this piece of shit little thing and he sounds exactly like himself (laughs) i feel like gear is nice but at the end of the day you sound like you anywhere you go okay so like you mentioned just gear in general and the guitar players idolizing the gear a point of pride for me i i don't often like to admit this because it sounds kind of egotistical, but like a point of pride for me, it was always, I don't use, I don't use a lot of shit. I could just take my guitar with me and a, and a suitcase and that's my rig. It's like, I'll, whatever you want to, like, I that's always, awesome. because I always love my favorite guitar players growing up. I know he used a bit of sauce, but I love that Eddie, you know, he basically was plugging into a hot rodded amp. I love Stevie Ray Vaughan had that real simple, Kind of rig. Jeff Back had a very, you know, dual super lead and a couple pedals, but he turned the tone knob all the way down. Like his sound was that amp, and just these guys were. I, I feel like their hand was sort of the effects processor, was the was the mothership, was the pedal board, was their hand, you know. And I love to play with the tone knob a lot. I like to play with the five way blade a lot. The volume, I'm constantly adjusting the volume, constantly because I feel like. That on the guitar, like that whole part of the guitar is the engine room. It's like there's so many different, there's so many different layers of EQing. And especially if you have really dialed in pickups, you can do so much with just the EQing and the volume knob of the way that the arc of the cue basically that rolls off differently and which pickup you're using and how hard you're hitting. You may play the whole show on, on six, but then it's like, oh, I need that gain boost. Okay. And then there's your, you know, I always was like, that's, that's an ideal situation for me. I, I love that. I love that idea. But that's what turned me into the player that I am. Like if I was to play in a different band and do something, like I couldn't do it in a different band. It works. It's like, oh, people say, oh, you're good. You play guitar. It's like, what band are you in? Or you play this? It's like, I play my music. It's like, that's how my music is played. I play the, the guitar in my band. It's like, I don't know if I could do that and have it work in it. Like if John was like, hey, Nick, we, we need you to fill in for all of you on this tour. Like, could you, I'm like, I don't, I couldn't do it, dude. I just, I could not do it, you know? 
what's up to Ollie? Love that guy. <laughs> so it's like that works for, for me and for, for what I do. You know, it's just, it's always been a point of focus. I want to be able to make the work with minimal gear. And even in the studio, it's like one guitar, pretty simple. <laughs> Whether or not that puts me into a corner, maybe I'll change one day. So what I'm understanding is you make your sound work no matter the situation, but like, it's like very much you at all times. Right, so right, right. when you do a solo on somebody's record where I guess maybe they have some expectations, is there a balance beam for that? No, <laughs> there is not. I give them, they, they go, Here, okay, here's the part. And if I, okay, I'll play on it. And then I'll send them the, the track. And it's like, I'll give them just a dry, you know, just a, this is what I thought would sound. This is how I would want to hear myself on this track. And here you go. And they're like, okay. <laughs> I never go like, do you want like a humbucking? No, it's like, this is, this is how I play. And that's what I think maybe is, it's a little close-minded or whatever, but that's how I play guitar. It's like, that's just my particular sound. And I'm comfortable doing that. I When I'm tracking the solo, I feel like that's when you're going to get the best out of me when I'm comfortable with how I sound, what it sounds like me. Usually improvise and usually like, okay, I'll give you an example. I did this solo years ago for for this band called Polyphia and the song oh, yeah. got a lot of heat, got a lot of traction. It was um, a song called Champagne. And I remember giving them basically the first pass at a solo. It was like, here's the first thing I did. See, Because this is one of the first real guest solos. I did. And they're like, this is great. We love it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So they wanted me. That's why they asked me. They wanted my guitar playing. So I just, I don't know. That was kind of, and I'm not a studio guy. I did one session with a, actually I did it with a really, it's funny you mentioned too. I did the session on this record with David Bottrell. He invited me in to play guitar on this record in, in Toronto. And that was when I had to do more of what you're saying. Like, is there a balance beam? Will you change your tone? David was in there fucking with the sounds and okay, try this part or see if you can change this. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't like this. I do not like this at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still had fun, but it wasn't like, that's something I want to actively pursue. That's the camp I'm in right now with that stuff. <laughs> so you don't like working with an engineer? I like working with an engineer when it's more so my stuff. If I'm just giving a guest solo, like, okay, we want you to play it. Give me a solo Got for it. this record. That would be like, here's what I'm presenting to you. This is like the sound I like. And I mean, I'm not going to give them like a super high gain sound if it's like a folky track where it's like got more of a 70s influence like i would obviously use a little bit of common sense but it's never a tone where i'm going why the fuck is there so why do you want so much chorus it sounds like shit like add you can add the chorus later (laughs) you you do what you want to the here's the signal you you fuck with it later that that's yeah that's typically my approach is just as long as i'm driving with the sound and again it's like why did you ask me if, if you didn't want my particular sound yeah, exactly. If they wanted something else, go to the person who does that thing. Yeah, go to Brent Mason who does like all the stuff. <laughs> that happens to mixers all the time. Oh like, my god, go I can only to, imagine. I can only imagine. Yeah, like they'll go to someone like Kurt Ballou and want him to do a Joey Sturgis style mix, and it's like, why don't you just go to Joey yeah. if you want a Joey style <laughs> mix? Right. That happens a lot actually to mixers and producers, uh, where bands just. They want them to sound like somebody else. Man, that that actually is going to lead. I had a question for you, because the world you live in is such a mystery to me. To me, you know, mixing and the process and the because there is also a, a balance beam aspect to mixing too, and knowing when you feel something is done. Because when I write, I feel like at some point I just abandon <laughs> the song. Like it's never done, right? It's like fuck it, this this is enough. Yeah. It, we're, we're done. Like you mentioned the refining thing. Like how did you go from composition and and 
John, do you do you mix too? Are you do you mix your records? He does. He says yes, but I just learned it because it was the only way. There you go. So that's a, yeah. John, John's good at it. Why did you go from? I guess is a good question of like composing and and what was it about mixing and and the process? Like what was it that made you go? Yeah, this is the thing. It was never the thing. So when I was like twenty or something, and I had a band. Like I was studying intensely how to get signed. I wanted to get signed to a big label. And so I was studying, which happened eventually because I got my band signed to Roadrunner, but that was like my mission, get signed, playing extreme metal to a large label, which is like impossible, was impossible. (laughs) And so I started studying all that stuff. And uh, I came to the conclusion that you needed to have something that sounded incredible. Whereas back in those days, People would say, just send a demo. An A&R guy can just understand the difference. Now, that's different now. You can't just send a shitty demo. But back then, it was like an accepted wisdom that you could just send it and they would understand. And I thought that was full of shit. So I wanted a great recording. And I started going to like really good studios. And then I priced it out and was like, to do this right, I'm going to need like $40,000. And that's not going to happen. So I may as well learn how to do it. That's literally all it was. It was just in service of putting out my own music. And then I guess I also saw it as like something that could feed my band. So basically if I could attract signed bands to my studio in the early 2000s, then maybe I could get them to take my band on tour. And then through my band going on tour, I could get people into the studio. So it was never because production was like a passion. It was more a means to an end. And that's it. It worked out exactly that way. But I guess I don't ever think I got great at it, but I think I didn't suck at it enough to end up getting good gigs. And uh, when I realized that my band was like a dead end, I mean, it was a cool band, but it was a dead end. And I was like 30 and I got this really good opportunity for production. I just, I went with it. But within a year of doing that, I knew I wanted to start URM or something. So yeah, mixing like as a career was never my thing. And I never thought I was that great. I always thought I was like, maybe I could have gotten incredible, but it would have taken years more and I didn't want to. And there are dudes that I know who want to and it's kind of like with the guitar thing, like you have to be cool to sit there for those eight hours. I wasn't, it just, it wasn't in me, but, <laughs> but however, what was in me was taking all the expertise from the band, from music, from recording and putting it together into like URM and riff hard. So yeah, it wasn't ever the thing. It's just, I didn't think that I had a future in a band Because to me, it was either the band is Slipknot size or I'm not interested. And I guess that sounds fucked up. But like, I'm just being honest. Like, I always have wanted to do things on a grand scale. Like, that's kind of just how my brain is wired. And so being in a band the size of my band was not good enough. And then also, we would tour with bands that were bigger than us and share buses. And then I'd look at how they lived and I'd be like, so... Best case scenario, we get as big as this band. And that still sucks. (laughs) So, like, do I... No, but here's the thing. I know know that for a lot of people, that's fine. So you just got to be honest with yourself about what you want in life. If you're cool with that, that's fine. But if you're not cool with that, you got to, like, own up to it or you're going to be miserable. The, The thing that matters is knowing yourself. And so, yeah, 
production was a means to an end, but it, it was also a means, it was as much a means to an end for my band as it was for starting URM. So yeah, it's, it's never been the thing. Right, 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 right. If that makes sense. That totally makes I, sense. I actually yeah. want to bring something up about what you just said as well about the demo tape. When we got signed to Century Media, uh, I was actually told a story there by uh, one of the A&R reps and they got onto the topic of the Lacuna Coil demo that was sent in. And the owner of the label at the time, what was his name? Robert, I think. I remember his last name. Robert Kampf. Yeah. And he was like, we need to sign this band immediately. That was his mindset of this demo. And everyone else in the company thought the demo was awful. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's just like that. He, for some reason, yeah. he saw something leadership. from that demo. And they turned into an absolutely massive band. So I think that maybe once upon a time, the the production not mattering was probably a thing. It was. That was the accepted wisdom back then. It was. And But can you imagine having an A&R guy now like that? I mean, labels are kind Fuck of dying no. off, aren't they? So like, everyone's just doing it themselves because they've realized that they don't need the middleman. <laughs> well, John, the thing is, I didn't want to get signed to Century Media. I wanted to get signed to Roadrunner or Sony or something. So like, I felt like, and I didn't want to play pop metal. I wanted to play like death metal. So... I felt like in order that stacks the odds totally against you. So I just felt like in order to pull it off, it had to it had to go above and beyond. But yeah, back then that was the thing. Like and also with Robert Kampf, that just goes to show like why he got to where he got is uh vision and leadership. Not everybody can see the future like that. I guess it's like Monty Connor seeing something in Slipknot or deicide or sepultura or typo there's not that many people who can see the future like that that's very true yeah hearing you guys talk about labels and it's so interesting what a different like i don't know anything about that world that world's so um so you're totally indie totally indie it's like that world's fascinating i, I could listen to you guys talk about that stuff forever it's just so um f so foreign i've got some really good advice for you don't get involved with it. If only think about it, if someone offers you lots of money. <laughs> if you're doing as well as you're doing now without a label, yeah. fucking more power to you. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you. That That's really cool. Do instrumental bands, do, do, see, this is how ignorant I am. Do they get, are they on, like, who's on a label? Do I, I mean, Satriani and Vi, I guess. Animals as leaders. They are on a label. That's right. Scale the summit. Yeah, scale the summit. We're on. Um, we it can happens. Even, we can even think bigger than that. Like, um, let's start thinking about sixty-five days of static. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that band. And you go into the sort of ambient rock. Guitar oh, it's the world. Russian circles. Uh, they're an instrumental band, right? Yeah, yeah, mono stuff like that. Um, Pelican, I guess, to a degree. Start going along those sort of lines, and the instrumental bands of that sort of era are quite you know, known on signed bands. But yeah, I mean, maybe with the guitar signed bands, maybe not so much anymore because everyone's going independent. But even, you know, Vi would have had a label. I can tell you this. Uh, I put out, Emil and I did an instrumental record in 2009 or 10 called Avalanche of Worms. I remember seeing the ad for it in a Guitar World, I believe. Yeah, Guitar World loved it. But it came out on Magna Carta Shrapnel and... That was cool, but honestly, 
I mean, Mike Farney is one of those people who can see the future. Right. But the budget they gave us, I could have just paid for. And also I paid the publicist out of my pocket too. So so that's why I got in Guitar World. So it was very cool to have someone like Mike Farney give the green light because it's like, you know, it's just cool. Yeah, it is cool. And it also, I guess, gave us the confidence to do it. Yep. I don't think we would have done it otherwise because it was like we were in Doth, we were doing that. And then we didn't think, why don't we just make an instrumental record? And then that came along and it was like, all right, let's make an instrumental record. But had we done instrumental music from the beginning, we could have funded it ourselves too and done it. For sure. I mean, however, you look at an example like Animals as Leaders, and I'm sure that their label has done a shit ton for them. More than likely. Yeah, more than likely. But, dude. There was Sumeria, right? Sumerian, yeah. And that, that label pushes their bands. But, I mean, have you ever wanted to be on a label? No, 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 no. I just don't like paperwork. <laughs> just keep it away. Just keep the paperwork away from me. <laughs> Can we talk about this a little? Like, I think that's fascinating because a lot of... Absolutely, yeah. Whatever you want. There's not that many artists that are indie who are who have done it on their own. Someone recently who did it on their own was, uh, you know, Jason Richardson. He put out his album on his own and fucking killed it. But this is kind of like something that people talk about being the ideal. Like it's kind of like this, this like fantasy for musicians to be able to do it without the industry, but it's almost impossible. So that said, how did you approach it? Like, did you approach it with a plan or did you just put shit out and it grew like... Okay, so I put the first one out around 2010. I remember around that time, everybody was starting to kind of roll pretty strong with, with YouTube and you know people putting out a weekly video. Like, And some of them were, at that time, quite impressive production. And subscribers started to become a thing. How many subs do you have? Oh, I got X amount of subs. Like this, I started to know, I'm like, what? Because I didn't really, I went on YouTube, I watched YouTube videos and, you know, a guitar player archive, Sean Lane footage. Like, oh, fuck, look at this. Thing. You know, you find like hidden gems, right? But I never had a YouTube channel. Uh, I didn't have a, a Facebook page. I didn't have, I don't even know if Instagram was around in 2010. I don't remember. You could fact check that. I have no clue, but I didn't have one. I think 2013 or 12. Right, right. So I didn't have, I didn't have any social media. So what happened was I was making an album because I wanted one. <laughs> I wanted an album. I just wanted to have a collection of music, like like a weird like kind of posterity thing. Like you know what I, I wrote a bunch of shit and I I, uh, I did demos, a couple of rounds of demos. I showed it to friends. I, I got a couple thousand bucks I've saved up from teaching. I'll go into the studio on this weekend with the band and I'll just, we'll cut it. And we did. I had a, a drummer I'd recently become friends with just through a bunch of circumstances and, and watching his videos on YouTube. You guys maybe know Travis Orban. You guys know Travis? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I don't know him, but I know exactly who he is. Yeah. Yeah. So cool guy. And we just hit it off. And so he played on the first album and the other guys, guitar and bass and myself, we just went in in the weekend did the album and it sounds like it. It's a very low production. Just in fact, the production was done with a guy, the engineer. He didn't want us to use click because he thought playing with a click was too modern, which I thought was um, a very, very silly <laughs> idea. So I said to him, I said to him, uh, I, I, I want uh, click, please. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
I had it and I got it fully produced and I got the CD. I remember the CDs came to the house and I remember the moment I, I grabbed it and I opened it up, I was like, wow. And then it dawned on me. I was like, now what? <laughs> I was like, oh, oh shit. You gotta do something with these. And then I realized, I'm like, oh fuck. That was all the easy part. <laughs> that was all the easy part. Writing the music was free. Recording it was not free, but was fun and I understood it. I didn't have to learn anything new that much. Then there was a whole thing of like, oh my God, now I have to learn about like distribution and marketing and promoting and putting myself out there and just like this whole thing. So the first record not selling, literally not one copy when it came out was a really, really amazing self-awareness kind of, I learned why or even better, nobody owes you shit like nobody nobody cares about your music like <laughs> this is amazing this keeps coming up <laughs> nobody yeah. yeah nobody owes you anything like why would they why would they care it's just a fucking nether guitar anyway so nobody cares yeah nobody cares i started a youtube channel and just put up some clips of me playing i started a facebook page and i remember when i got to 100 likes i was like holy fuck i put everything on i think it was cd baby i was using because i had a buddy that was using it put everything out there and it just was out there i'm like okay cool it's out there then I learned that, oh shit, you have to make content regularly. Oh no, fuck. So that became a whole thing where it's like, I guess I should get a camera. And like that became a whole thing where I was like, okay, I guess this is my destiny now. <laughs> and then I had saved up a little bit of money in the meantime. And I'm going to tell you a bit of a story. This might be a little long winded, but I'm just going to tell the story. So then after dealing with Travis, we kept talking. It, it turns out he was working at a studio in, in Bethesda, Maryland called, uh, I think it was Ocean Studios or something like that. A guy, Taylor Larson's studio. Yep. And Travis always tracked with Taylor at, at his place. And so, you know, I, I live in a small Canadian town. I was like, fuck it. I've saved up some cash. I got a credit card. I maxed the credit card out and I'm going to do another album. I'm going to spend, I'm going to actually put some thought into this. I'm going to film some of the sessions and I'm going to do the whole thing. So I loaded up the car with a buddy of mine and we drove down in January of 2012, I think, or 2013, doesn't matter. We drove down to Maryland. We drove down to Bethesda. And what was interesting was we drove down there and I was like, oh, I realized we haven't booked anywhere to stay. So we ended up sleeping in Taylor's basement and Taylor got really sick in the sessions. I remember he was, he couldn't be there for any of them. He was coughing up blood. He was really sick. And it was just a whole, the whole session was just like, <laughs> this is the fuck. It was like, and, and I don't want to throw anybody Hell under session. the bus. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But anyway, but what happened was, and this was a, the second album I did. Now I had sent, it's you know interesting talking about demo tape stuff. I had sent a song off that first album. And then I looked at that first album as sort of a business card. I sent a song off to two guitar players I really loved, a guy named Paul Gilbert and a really big guitar player at the just, time. Just some random some dude random named guy, Paul Gilbert. And Guthrie yeah. Govan, these two guys. I had their email through a mutual contact and they both responded and they said uh, they would play on my second album. And I was, you know, being whatever, 23, 24 at the time. I was like, uh, what, what, excuse me, what? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't cheap. Let me just say that. But I got them to play on the record. <laughs> and then uh, the last day of tracking in a locked room on the moon, this album, a guy named Spencer Satello was going to come by. Taylor told me my friend Spencer from from Periphery. I, I knew a little bit about Periphery. Periphery 2 had just come out and I thought it was a pretty cool sounding record. I was like, wow, it sounds really massive for, for, um, for this genre of music I just kind of discovered. I don't know if, if there's a new word for that genre sidebar. Is it, do we still call it 
gent or is it, has that changed or no? I, I don't know. Is it just metal now or? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> I think it's gent, but if people who are afraid of that word call it progressive metal or something. Progressive metal. But it's gent. It's gent. Okay. So regardless, so I met these guys and I didn't know much. Right? So I'm like, okay, I'll meet this guy, Spencer. And he was there and he listened to some of the records. That just And he, he was like, this is great. And then he asked me to start a band with him. So we started this little project called The Mothership, which didn't go anywhere, but we were in touch. Then, because that didn't go anywhere, he asked me if I wanted to play on a Periphery album. So they were putting this, this EP out called Clear. I ended up playing on one of the songs off of Clear. There's a guitar solo on one of the songs. And uh, what happened then was the ball started rolling. Like, you know, obviously I go from just kind of, I was playing a Strat all the time, being a Strat guy, and but then being thrust into a fan base that Periphery had. So they see this guy playing Strat and they're like, who the fuck is this guy playing some, some bluesy stuff? And uh, I got this new kind of scenario that my name was sort of being dragged through a little bit, like, Periphery is Nick Nick guy, blah, blah. and then it was further pushed the next year, and this was 2000 Nam of 2014, so January of 2014. I was standing in the Hilton, uh, you know, it's a mess in there at Nam time, it's an absolute fucking <laughs> yeah. mess. Yep. So I'm standing there back near the elevators, and these four kids come up to me, and I remember they all looked the same. They had backwards hats on, and they pulled it all at the same time, like business cards, or whoosh, and it had a P on it. I was like. Polyphia. They're like, hey, we're this band Polyphia. We love what you did. I remember this. I remember seeing this. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh my God, dude. That's crazy. Um, yeah. You were there? Remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this exact moment because you remember uh, Isn't that, crazy? that was my first NAM. That was my second NAM. So I was still like, what the fuck? And uh, they gave me this and they said, we're Polyphia. We're, we want to, we love what you did on the per, uh, Periphery album. We'd love to play on this song that we're putting out. I was like, okay, I I never, I didn't know anything about them. And then uh, I went home and I did a solo for them, gave it to them. And then they flew me to Texas to be in the video. And that video got millions of views. And again, I was the Strat guy. So they were playing guitar. You know, I was, again, that guy with just, just the Strat guy. And my name started kind of getting attached to that. Then I put in an album called Atomic Mind, which there's that band, the Aristocrats. You know that band? They're uh, oh, instrumental of band. Yeah, Guthrie yeah, so, band. Brian yeah. and Marco, they were my band for that album. So Marco and Brian were the were the rhythm section on Atomic Mind. And Guthrie did a bunch of guitar solos. So just from meeting and talking and emailing and shit, got all these guys on there. And it started to kind of take a little bit more. And this is my third album, by the way. I have made a dollar. Third album, still not making any money. And I'm just like, okay, I guess. How I many still, years? How many years? Uh, of Since the first. Since the first, this was four years. Which is, it's not, okay. it's not that long, but it's a lot. I spent... <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I maxed a credit card out. I maxed a credit card out and paid off that credit card with another credit card. That's yeah. the level of debt I was in at this point. Yeah, you can you can drop a lot of cash in four years, and that's four years after like ten years of playing. This is four years after ten or eleven years. Yeah, exactly. So I'm pretty far down okay, the rabbit yeah. hole. At so this point. about fifteen years. Pretty yeah. far down the rabbit hole, and then. This is where I got in touch with Schechter. Keith Marrow and Jeff Loomis liked some of the stuff off of... Because um, this is when Concrete Dystopia came out, right, right around this time. What's his face? Audio Hammer. Um, Jason. Yes. Yes. He was involved in that, I think, or someone, I think, mixing it or something. Anyway, so there was this big community of guys that it, my name had been circling around, different genres. And then Keith and Jeff had signature guitars with Schechter, and they 
I wasn't with any company. I didn't have a single endorsement with nobody because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And then they got me in touch with Schechter. Schechter started taking me all over the world as, as, a, as their new guy because they were launching the custom shop and I got involved. And they be, sort of made me the face of the custom shop. And then uh, the next album I put out, because this is 2016, I put an album called Remarkably Human, which I managed to get my all-time favorite drummer, well, next to Jeff Picaro, Gavin Harrison played on this record. And... Uh, he had just gotten home from a tour with King Crimson and, and I had gotten in touch with him and he's like, I sent him a couple of tracks and he's like, yeah, I'll do it. Sure, no problem. And then that album came out and that's that song in a bunch of video stuff. That's when I noticed it was like a click. It was like, oh, okay. And now when people got on board with that, they now had three records to go back to and a bunch of stuff. It was like a, a snowball effect. And I'd done a lot of, like, I think I did a hundred the, that year, the, I think I did like 126 flights that year traveling. Like it, was, it was like one flight every two days. It was ridiculous. So I was like, I put in the time. I was going hard, going hard. And was, I wasn't home. I was never home. I, poor girlfriend I was with at the time. She was just like, I can't, I can't fucking live like this. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> are you coming or are you going? What's happening here? It wasn't ever a, a noticeable thing that people were even remotely interested in what I did until... I started to see just like, I put it, I always release my music for free. Here it is. Just take it. If you want to pay, buy it, you can buy it, but just, just take it. It's in front of you. Uh, Cause I noticed that's how I was sort of digesting newer music too. It's like, I want to hear it before I buy it. Cause I want to know what I'm getting with YouTube streams or Spotify and Apple music. So I just did the same. Like, Here, just take it. If you want it, fuck it. And then uh, I noticed the numbers the first day, the numbers doubled and doubled again. I'm like, holy shit. And then I did one more album, which came out last year called uh, Wide Eyes in the Dark with Eric. Eric did all the keys on that and this drummer, Benny Greb. And uh, it just, you know, it's just been just slowly growing. It's just been a, a whatever, 20 odd year, 20 year or so process of just trial and error. And the main thing was, was I owned everything. And if it, if it went well, it went well for me. If it didn't, then I lost a lot of money. And I, I've just kind of maintained that mentality, you know, and I, Again, it's like, I'm going to keep going with it. And I'm doing it. Actually, I was talking to John before the podcast. I'm doing this new project with a friend of mine. I want to try something different. Uh, we're both going to sing on it. I'm going to sing on this record. <laughs> Got this really great drummer, this really great session drummer out of uh, Los Angeles. A guy named Aaron Sterling. He played on everything. He plays with like, you know, Lana Del Rey and John Mayer. Like he's just got these old... Bo- yeah, I've heard of that guy. Yeah, he's great. Oh, he's fantastic. Big bottom sound, like the huge kick drum, big, just big natural, like manhole cover, hi-hats, you know, there's just fucking huge, huh? just beautiful sound. And it's just because it's like, I got, I want to try it. I want to try some shit. And if it doesn't go well, I don't expect it to go well because it's, it's me singing, but I got to give it a shot, give it a shot. You know, and I'm always working on instrumental stuff, but... um it's just been a slow burn and a bunch of really interesting coincidences that just seem to kind of line up. But I really believe the House of Cards um, or the, the domino effect, I should say, happened from from just taking that risk and, and going to, to Maryland because that's when I met some of those guys that had a lot of... Periphery had a lot of heat online at that time too. I don't know if you remember, like everyone was using Facebook at the time when Periphery would put up even a stupid little status. It would be like... A thousand shares. And- the heat has not died down. It has not died down. Exactly. Exactly. It has not died down. It was a good kind of, as just like this guy doing everything on my own, I had no, I was just like, okay, well, fucking, you know, let's see what happens. Try it out. And, and uh, 
I try not to look too closely at the numbers and, and finances about just, I'm just staying focused. Like just stay focused. I don't, I don't really spend money. I don't really do stuff unless I can afford to do it. And I just roll everything back into the business. That's how I look at it. You know, <laughs> it's fun. You've had some awesome. absolutely incredible musicians on your records. So that is actually quite fascinating. Very, very lucky to have, to have had some of these guys. Yeah. Very, very lucky. Do you know, uh, I can't remember his last name right now. This is so embarrassing. Eric recommends him for a lot of stuff. The, Kevin, the bass player. Oh, Kevin Scott. Thank you. Kevin Scott played on uh, Wide Eyes and like... He played on Avalanche of Worms too. What a spectacular musician. Like, what a guy. Fuck yeah. He's Incredible. one of the best of the best of the best. Yeah. Amazing. He's an Atlanta dude. Oh, yeah. Anyways, we've got some questions here for you from our uh, listeners that I'd like to ask you. So I'll just start with this one. Uh, Vaughn Trabelet says, Nick, you're my favorite lead player since I oh, discovered wow. Slash when I was 13 years old. Oh my God, that's a pedigree. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> How does your approach differ when you're writing final guitar solos for your album versus when you're improvising? And is there anything you specifically listen for when listening back to your performance? Yes, and, and AL, this goes back to what you were asking about an engineer. Do you like tracking or you don't like working with that engineer? The the guy I work with, Scott Giffen, who's done a couple records with me now, he he's a guitar player. Uh, he's a really good friend of mine. And I he's one of these guys, you know, certain musicians, like you you want to work with a with a few guys that you know you can trust their opinion, you respect their opinion. And if they'd say something that is negative or has a little bit of weight behind it or, or is gonna deflate your ego you know it's for the right reasons. Like there's certain guys we all have like that and Scott's one of them. Uh, and typically I improvise all the souls. I just, cause that's, I feel like that's just, it's that whole thing of let's just fucking go. Let's just, it's the same shit, right? It's like that whole mentality. But he'll go to me, he go like, I think you can do better. And I'm like, okay, I think I, okay. You know what? <laughs> it's like, you can do better there. Uh, that band was flat. Like I get, I get a little bit more into the weeds with performance and I get more into the weeds. Not so much. I don't write, I've, I don't write the solo because I find, um, I find that very tedious and typically the harmony in my solos, all the, the chord progressions are usually, it's just, <laughs> I get accused of this from some people like every chord, it never was. It's like just tension, right? Substitution, tension, tension, drag you out, drag you in, bring in, and does it resolve? And that like, it would be it would be very patchworky and very um, you know like rhyme scheme if I was like you could hear the rhyme scheme over those chord progressions. So I avoid that. I just try to play kind of naturally. But I have him there whispering in my ear like, "Ah oh, man, I've seen you do better. I've seen you do better." There's there's a take on uh, I did this documentary. My buddy Grant shot it of uh, the making of Remarkable Human. There's a take where I'm doing a pass over the solo section and I get to the end of it and it's like, oh, it looks like that's the take. And I'm like, that oh, was shit. Let's start it over. And you just hear Scott laugh because it's like he'd been saying it at me, <laughs> saying that to me for like half an hour at that point. It's like, no, again, you know. So that's kind of where I go with it is just like, does it pass the does it pass the test with someone whose opinion that's been working with me at that point? Cause we do solos last that's been working with me under the microscope for a week. Does he go that works for the song? Cause I don't know at that point, I'm so fucking up my own ass that I don't even know what's going on. Sometimes you, <laughs> so you, it's all about trust. Yeah. You need exactly. You need that guy to go, Oh, that was sick. Or you need that guy to go, uh, what do you, th and then he'll do the thing. He'll go, what'd you think of that? 
that one's the that, worst one, isn't does, it? It's like, so, oh, I hate so, that. So what'd you think of that? But we, sometimes he'll comp things like he'll go, man, I like that first. And sometimes the solos are way too fucked. There's a song on Remarkable Human, the song called uh, Fear Had Him By The Throat and the solo's like a minute and like 20. It's just like, oh my. Like that's, and if I was writing a solo that's a minute and 26 seconds, like I would just, I'd want to quit music. You know, it's just too long. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, it's about having that person around that in the kind of heat of battle, so to speak, can kind of just give you that confidence boost or can just say, "We, we can do better. That's the whole thing. Having a good team, I think, is is paramount when you're when you're making records. Yep. So I have a, a another question here. We've actually answered quite a lot of these questions already, but I kind of want to just sort of see if there's anywhere further that we can go with them. Uh, I've got a question here from Bastian Bove. Cool name. Um, and I've probably said that wrong. I do apologize, Bastian. What inspires you to write music? Do you sort of have some sort of habits when it comes to songwriting? And obviously we've already spoken about the improvisational thing, but if you could just take it further, that'd be great. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because like I talked about earlier, the balance of free time and what the hell do I want to do with all this free time? The reason why I'm writing music now is because I like the idea and, and I, I seem to always want to build this kind of world that is like a safety, it's like a safe place for me. Like me sitting here and working on music is a safe, it, whether or not it's it's something that I, I'm not getting or it's not falling under my hands or I'm working at the piano or the guitar. Like writing music and sitting here and doing this is the most pure expression for me as someone who grew up obsessed with with feeling better because of music, feeling better and feeling stronger, uh, developing confidence and developing an identity because of music. There is nothing I enjoy more. There's nothing that makes me feel better. And and you guys know when you write that part or you finish that song or you put the finishing touch or that melody is written and comes out and you hear it back in the speakers. Oh my God. If there is nothing even close to that feeling, you're like, how the fuck did I come up with that? Or this is everything. This is, this is why I do this. Like to get that feeling. I have not experienced that feeling with anything else. And, and essentially I'm probably just chasing that feeling. I'm, again, it's the void, right? You're just trying to throw shit into yep. the void. And that's why you never, never get to a point where you're satisfied with it because you know, is that all you got? It's like, is that all you got? You're only as good as your last. Is that all you got? <laughs> <laughs> the reason I do it is because without sounding too dramatic or whatever, it's like, I have to do it. I have to fucking do it. There's just no other way. When I'm away from it too long, more than sometimes uh, more than half a day or a day, if I'm away from it, I get really upset. I get really emotional. I get really um, angsty. I apologize to uh, Emily, the girl I'm dating right now, because she sees it. <laughs> She's like, oh, I can see him changing a bit. I can see it. I do my best to keep a, a garbage can lid on that Oscar, on that Oscar the Grouch. Found the Canadian Jekyll Hyde. And, but yeah, the reason I do it is it's, it's like unavoidable. It's like it's unmanageable. I have to do it. Not that I'm 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 not I'm not I don't even think I'm good at it. I, that's why I want to do it because I want to get good at it. I want to learn how to do it properly. I want to I want to I want to change. I'd like to get to a point where I'm writing for other instruments and I'm I'm writing bigger arrangements, but I'm just I'm just not there yet. I I'm not at that level. Which is interesting because if you think about it, it's like I'm 33. I've been doing it for what 20 years. That's 33 in the grand scheme of of being like a to the level that you would consider some of these guys like grandmaster musicians. Like they're in their 70s and 80s. It's like every day I'm banking money to have that to have that big bank account when I, you know that like level of 
when I'm 80, I'll have all these resources, all this infrastructure that I've developed, my ears. My, maybe I'll be able to delegate with other people at that point, but like I'll have put the time in and I'll be able to just finally, here's, here's the thought, right? It's like, by then, <laughs> by then I'll be able to write that piece of music, which I never will, but by then I'll be able to write it, you know, that whole thing. <laughs> anyway, that's why I do it. Awesome, man. Well, I think this is a good place to uh, end the episode. Uh, yeah, dude, that was great. I want to thank you for taking the time for hanging out with us. It's been awesome. You guys too. This this was awesome. This was my one of my favorite experiences with the podcast. Thank you guys so much. It was really great. Hey, I thank really you. enjoyed it. It was good to hear the story, man. Yeah, it was fun, guys. Thank you guys so much. God, Canadians are so nice. They are, aren't they? Like, just immediately just feel warm and fuzzy talking to him. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if he'll appreciate this, but I mean, this is a total compliment. I kind of consider him to be the modern Eric Johnson. Yeah, I can definitely hear that. Maybe it's the strap, but just the way he kind of sounds. And it's the way he sounds and plays. Like, I feel like like he inhabits that same spot in like the virtuoso guitar player universe that Eric Johnson had back in the day. I'd also say a little bit of Andy Timmons in there as well. Like just maybe it's the phrasing more than anything. I don't think it's the way that they sound. I think it's just falls into that, but I totally hear where you're coming from for sure. Yeah, man. He's such a tasteful player and he does it all without a noise gate. It's pretty fascinating. Your kind of player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I, I'm, I'm well into that. I respect that. No one, and he doesn't use the noise gate live either. He's constantly rolling down his volume to make sure that he doesn't feed back and stuff. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing to watch because you know modern guitar players don't know what a volume knob is. I most certainly do not. Do you use a gate for live and um, obviously when I'm at home uh, recording? But when it comes to recording albums, I try and turn it really really low so it's just cutting out the unwanted noise and in the process of doing that I also become a better player because I'm relearning how to mute my guitar and um, that's kind of the biggest battle I think when it comes to you know actually being good at the instrument it's actually learning how to control it yeah I agree and if you've got four gates on it you don't know what's actually going on yeah I mean I think that gates there there's something about them that in some ways is part of a musical style, the way that cutting out the space on a recording, like in Meshuggah style rhythms, it makes it sound a certain way. Oh, yeah. And I think that it's almost like an artistic decision at times, the same way that sometimes tuning something, a vocal is an artistic decision. But I think that if you're doing it because you can't control it, that's a, that's a different story. I, I feel like the most important thing when making art is intent. And yeah. so if your intent is to have that gated sound, then fucking awesome. If uh, you just don't know what you're doing, that's, <laughs> that's different. I think it's completely different. I, I feel the same way about like fret wraps on the neck. I mean, for, you know, stylistic choice, like let's take uh, Michelangelo, for example. He kind of had that fret wrap thing before it really was a thing. Um, and I understood why he used it in his sense, because obviously he was going down both fretboards with both of his hands and doing the legato thing. Um, and at that point, it's like, in order for the notes to be completely unnoisy, you kind of have to do it. And it was impressive. But I think that 
a lot of times now people put a fret wrap on their guitar, leave it there and actually forget how to control their instrument. So yeah, I think if you want the style of that sound, perfect. But I think at times just take the fret wrap off, turn off the noise gate and actually hear what you're actually playing. Yeah. Take the training wheels off basically. Yeah. Ride that bike, ride (laughs) that balance beam. Like, uh, like Nick said. Yeah. So I didn't realize that he was left-handed, but played a right-handed guitar. I had no idea either, because then he had more guitars to choose from. He's smart. <laughs> yeah, he, he is really, really smart. And yeah, you're right. He had more guitars to choose from. But I can't imagine trying to become a good picker with my weaker hand. Yeah, that would be a very stressful time, I think. I mean, when I was first starting to play guitar, I used to just try and play the other way, just for, you know, a little bit of fun. And it was always just, it just felt so wrong, you know, because of how the body reacts. You know, if you're right-handed, that's how you lead with everything that's on that side. So, yeah, I think that there would have been quite a big amount of challenges that Nick would have had to have overcome just in the beginning, just to really develop that picking hand, which obviously he did a great job of. Yeah, which is crucial because you ain't shit as a guitar player without a good picking hand, yep. in in my opinion. And one thing that he was talking about was the coordination between the two hands. That was something to really, really focus on. And I think that at Riff Hard, we really, we really drive that point home. We drive that point home a lot, and it's to do with precision between the left and right hands. You know, oftentimes or not, a lot of people will say that your fretting hand is more important than your picking hand. When in actuality, the picking hand and the fretting hand are just as important as each other with the, I'd probably say the picking hand is ever so slightly more important being that it's the last point of contact the the string has before it reaches your amplified sound, whether that's acoustic or electric. But the coordination between the two is what really makes you sound tight. It makes the music. If you're all over the place between the two hands, you're going to get loads of dead spots and, you know, all of these technical problems. So the coordination between the right and left hand is single-handedly probably the most important part about being a good guitar player. And uh, we focus on that in the downpicking gym with loads of different exercises to basically bring the precision between the two um, together, between the left and right hand. And not just exercises, but a structured plan and schedule with which to follow them. And what's cool about it too is it's not one of these things where we're saying spend seven hours a day working on this one thing if you want to be coordinated or good it's a it's actually more like 20 to 30 focused minutes on this type of technique if you follow this schedule you will get better you definitely will i mean we've seen it visually in the group we've seen people that have been part of riffard for less than a month and their improvement has just completely skyrocketed um, from spending 20 to 30 minutes a day on a, on the thing we call the schedule, which organizes all of the exercises we have on the site. And weekly, it gets updated with different techniques that can be focused on. One thing I, w- I want to point out is when we say only 20 or 30 minutes, this is not like one of those five minute abs things, like get a six pack in only five minutes a day. This is definitely not what we're saying uh, one bit. It, 20 or 30 minutes is really all you need to do in order to build that mind-hand connection and to strengthen your wrist enough to where it's good. And we use, it's not like progressive overload like in 
weightlifting, but it's kind of a similar idea that the exercises progress in a way that you're constantly being challenged. So it's not just something for your wrist to do. Your mind has to constantly adapt to these, which gets you better, basically. It does. Yeah. It's con- and it's like, once you get used to something, your, your mind sort of trickles off. Yeah. It, it like checks out. Yeah. So if you're constantly stimulating the mind, then the, you're never getting enough time to sort of just get bored of the same exercise basically. And if you, you know, constantly building up diff- different muscle memories, then your coordination is just going to continually get better and your mind's going to be stimulated to want to rehearse that thing as well. Yeah, exactly. And hey, also, if the next thing you're learning incorporates that first thing you learned, but it's more difficult, then you still are practicing that first thing you learned. Exactly. Yeah, because you're still incorporating that technique. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's the whole point of learning, isn't it? It's just to rebuild on the exercises that we learned when we began and just to try and do it in a better way. That's exactly what we're doing. Exactly. So guitar players, you want to get your right hand together and actually do this for real. <laughs> Go to riffhard.com, check out the down picking gym, follow the schedule and promise you within a few weeks, your picking will be somewhere that you never imagined. Yeah. And it's not just for down picking either. It will actually stimulate the picking in every aspect of your playing. Absolutely. All right, John, it's been real. It's been real, man. <laughs> See you next time. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.